0: Okay,
1: to
2: we'll get started. A lot of people are out of town, going to visit their relatives, uh, but, you know, we're <laughs> pressing on, and I think next week others are going to be leaving, Nuri and Nathan and uh, Thanks to the magic of Zoom and, and all other platforms, we'll be able to stay in touch. Um, where, where's Alice? She to oh, hi, Alice. Okay. <laughs> Separation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, we're going to continue with Black Reconstruction and the first chapter of Black Worker. But before we get started, um, I asked uh, Jeremiah and Nuri if they would give us an update on the organization and planning for the conference on Korea.
3: Um, this past week, Selena, I feel like we talked about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Like the past week, I feel like we were sort of brainstorming all the ideas, but I feel like in the last week, we've come up with more of a structure a of, the of what we want to accomplish. And so the tentative title right now, and we welcome feedback because right now we don't have a verb in the title and we might want one, is Korean civilization and a path to peace and reunification. Um, And so a lot of it hinges around, I think this concept of civilization, which we've mentioned and have talked about a little bit in the past weeks as well, but it seems like we have to start with civilization Um, to say that the Korean people are one people and that this is a civilization of peace. And that basically we have to understand, like this preschool thing is we have to understand the past to look forward to the future. But I think part of it is we also wanna talk about what civilization means in the Du Boisian sense for our times, because it matters a lot in the current like world moment, like this thing of the new world order, not just multipolarity, but I think something about civilization. And in the past, we've talked about China and India which I think are like the big classical civilizations. But we want to explore the idea of free as a civilization and through that, I think, just build on the free school understanding of civilization and what it means today. And I think we've settled that we want to have the ideological bulk of the conference happen in one full day so that everybody is experiencing it together. And so I think we'll start with the Korean people and their civilization, um, the single garment of destiny, civilization in the world today. And yeah, so then sharing that with other people so they can understand it. And then I think moving into, I guess the crime of imperialism, Mm -hmm. why imperialism is so like, yeah, just so wrong. The crime of disrupting a people's natural development. Mm -hmm. And through that, trying to discuss, I think the Japanese occupation, the Korean War, and the American occupation, which continues to this day, and see, and connecting all three of those ideas through the broader idea of imperialism. Because um, I think a lot of Korean people will separate those. And I think through that, we're trying to then delve into an exploration of the North Korean state in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to explore North Korea's support for colonized and oppressed people throughout the world, mm-hmm. who North Korea has diplomatic relations with, and the fact that the North Korea is not isolated from the world. Um, we want to also talk about the famine, um, and oh, the famine in the 1990s, which is called I think the Arduous March. And so, thinking about that as a sort of second formation of the North Korean people. So the first coming out of the Korean War and the struggle of that, and then the second being the famine, and so bringing us to today. Um, and I think a lot of this is like also related to bigger ideas we've been having about like the Fourth American Revolution and what actually can make a new people who are prepared to take up struggle. Um, And I think in that we want to focus mostly on the North, but one aspect of the South that we might want to explore is the movement in the 1980s, which was primarily a student movement of young people working for democracy and peace. And so I think it'll be interesting to, I guess, explore this in connection with what North Korea was doing, because in some ways, the whatever positive aspects the student movement might like had i think were connected to the world movement going on at the time and was in a lot of ways limited by the dictatorship of the south korean government and so i feel like through that we can maybe explore the contradictions of south korean society but also propose like a positive alternative um, that is connected with i guess the legacies of peace um and then i think at the end we were thinking of having maybe a town hall to discuss how the world is changing and I think one of the ideas that was new that came up in the last week was the fact that the Korean struggle is something made for Korean people to solve yeah. and being able to work through that would be a contribution to humanity. And so this idea of civilization and I guess the Korean people not being an issue of nationalism or just a self-centered issue but actually something that matters a lot to the world. And so part of what we want to be into this too I think is like the role that Korea plays in the world like when you think of geopolitics and like Asia the rise of Asia the Korean conflict matters a lot and so I think that's sort of a general arc of that event and then we were thinking too of trying to look into more of like culture stuff but we couldn't find like we haven't found any documentaries yet that would be nice but maybe like an art exhibition or just display actually like demonstrating and portraying um, what culture and civilization means?
4: Okay. Yeah. Um, just to add, I don't. I
3: don't know, is it Korean civilization and B path or A path? you said A path.
2: I think we said A. Yeah. Okay. So
3: because it's not like determinative, and it's not saying that we are the sole like authority of it. And also, I think that it's not just for Korean people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that through Korea, like you can find like A path. That would need
4: something into the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to add to what Neri's saying, um, I think in a lot of our discussions with with Doc, with Anna, um, and then Neri so far, we've also been talking a lot about yeah, how do we frame this to people, especially mm-hmm. Korean-Americans, mm-hmm. Um, who I think will be one of our primary audiences, hopefully, but is also a big challenge because, um, yeah, I think we, we've said this before, but like the Korean war was like a hugely devastating and also traumatizing event for like the entire peninsula and especially in the north. But um, also, yeah, a lot of people have like bad feeling. They continue to have bad feelings that they harbor after the war. Like there's a lot of like trauma there's a lot that has not really been talked about, especially in like the Korean American community, I think regarding the war and like what actually happened. Um, And so we wanna be sensitive to that without sacrificing principle and without sacrificing, especially, um, like Doc was saying this before preschool, but like without sacrificing a recognition of the achievement of North Korea in particular. And I think something that the doc had mentioned, which was in our discussion that was really helpful to think about was that if you think about like, you know, yeah, the rise of Asia, where humanity is moving in like a broad like world civilization sense and, and all of that. And like, especially in the context of like past events like the China event, the India events and all of those, I think there's a way that you can think about like Korea, like South Korea, North Korea, but particularly South Korea as an anachronism in some ways, as being against, it's almost like being, cause you know, the kind of, the trope about North Korea is that, that North Korea is like the country that's stuck in time, mm-hmm. that they're stuck in sort of a, a Stalinist regime. <laughs> but actually, if you think about it, in terms of where the world is moving, it's actually South Korea that's stuck in the past like and that brought this up that for South Korea to remain occupied by the United States is something which is can only be relegated to like his like to the past era of humanity almost and that this is something which is not sustainable anymore with where where Asia is moving where humanity is moving and this is something that we really want to impress um with with the event and to convey that Um, and yeah i think we're also like we really do want to involve like all of free school in this um because there's a lot that like we don't know that we're trying to uncover and figure out with these broad questions um and so yeah like over the next mm-hmm. I, I guess like because we're aiming for like late march yeah. with the events over the next couple months um we're definitely going to try to make sure like everyone in free school not just like knows the event is happening but actually like has like some like feel some stake personally in it as well Mm -hmm. so um yeah like we want this to be a collective effort and um yeah I think what we've what the free school has already done and sort of the strides that we've made politically ideologically and in terms of relationships um with different people institutions in Philadelphia I think this event will be building on those and that also it will be drawing from you know yeah the experience of the China the China Mm -hmm. and the India events as well Mm -hmm. as the 10th anniversary um and building on that um and yeah I think uh, I'm I'm pretty excited too about what Neri mentioned in terms of like a Du Boisian understanding of civilization because I like I feel like we've talked about it a lot um but almost like the event will be Kind of a like an opportunity to kind of test that out like this kind of framing um and to uncover something new through that and to also learn something not just about the past but also the future as well um and so yeah i think like potentially we do as nerd was saying like maybe like a a half day or something that has more cultural stuff potentially we haven't really decided but then the sort of the substance of it will be like yeah like a full day where it's like it follows like an arc um,
3: well the thing is is that i want to say that it's not that we want the cultural thing to actually be separate but we want to be able to demonstrate the essence and the ideological part of the event through i guess the cultural part as well so that we can go through basically the same arc or basically convey the essence yeah but most of the discussions we want to have i think on one
1: day yeah um
4: and yeah i think with the uh the town hall idea that neri mentioned i think because we want like different kinds of people to come different communities to come um I think we don't want it to just be like us talking at people Mm -hmm. but also like after you know setting a certain framework like working building out the ideas building out kind of like the arc of the event um like we really want people to like say like what they think um and ultimately because yeah the the struggle for peace is like a human process it is a process that needs to involve people and we're hoping that yeah, we can draw people to the event and that they can also like, contribute their thoughts and ideas, um, especially through that like town hall uh format at the end, potentially. But yeah, those are some of the ideas that we've been talking about. I
1: think one,
3: like, one thing that we've been talking a lot about in general, I think, is how to the fact that free school is a place for the American people to meet and to actually grow to know one another. Uh, And part of what is needed in Korea as well, for peace, is for the people to know one another Mm -hmm. and for the people to determine a path, Mm -hmm. not one that's been set for them by others or by the ruling class, Mm -hmm. but for them to be able to believe that they can find a way that works. Mm -hmm. And I think part of, the sad thing too about, I guess, the peace movement in general or approaches to reunification are that they're too set in their ways in like existing frameworks of like international relations and diplomacy. And so I think what we want to say is that this is a new age where things have not been determined yet. And if it's an a- if it's going to be like the rise of Asia, like we want it to be an age of democracy, mm-hmm. which means that there's a place for everybody to actually contribute mm-hmm. something. And that that's not just an option but in fact it's necessary it's the only way and everybody's contribution is very much needed for this time and so i think that's sort of also how we were thinking about the town hall um not just like a chit-chatting but like actually being like okay like this is part of the revolutionary process and i think a lot of yeah like what we've been talking about korea is not just for intellectual curiosity but it actually does mean something to the american people yes. um like this example of Like, I don't know, just never giving up, like having that spirit of being determined to find a way, um, I think is something that Americans can look to and I think can do.
2: You know, um, this will be another example of the free school doing political heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there, there are two things I was mentioning to uh, Nuri and Jeremiah this more than one, one thing, but the two things. One, the highest concentration of nuclear weapons anywhere in the world are all for the Korean Peninsula. The United States has occupied South Korea, which is Korea. And I would say outside of the Japanese occupation, which lasted only about 10 years at the most, I think. like 30 years. Oh, was it a 30-year? Oh, I didn't know that. I was just thinking the war period. And then, of course, this almost 70-some-year occupation by the United States. Um, And we were talking, first of all, a lot of people think Korean civilization is derivative from Chinese civilization. Mm -hmm. It is not. You know, uh, it is uh, a civilization in its own right. And so we've talked a lot about the Korean language. uh, And uh, the Korean language is at least as old as Chinese. The Korean state is, I think, at least as old as the Chinese state, the Han state this old ancient civilization to be occupied like this and to have war fought on it is never happened in their history, Mm -hmm. never, never. And so for us, we were talking about it, we had to be sensitive to the trauma of that on the Korean people. And so, you know, we talked about uh, a balanced approach, understanding Korean Americans, how they've been in, well indoctrinated uh, and how the North Korean issue could be divisive and so on. And then this morning I said to, cause I thought about this, thought about this, no part of the Korean people have been as traumatized as the people of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Nobody. The other thing is the guardian of peace on the Korean Peninsula in large part Asia is North Korea, the North Korean state. If the North Korean state collapsed tomorrow, the US and Japan would be in there with the quickness. They would, a reign of terror would come down upon the Korean people. You know yeah they would be celebrating in the south at least manufactured happiness but the and so i was saying to them this morning we cannot you know kind of have a balanced approach well the korean people in the south they too are in the north no north korea and i agree with Nori, it is the future the other thing i just wanted to say We see the spectacular rise of China. A lot of this occurred during a moment of rapprochement, a Mm -hmm. rapprochement between the United States and China. You know what I'm saying? Uh, A moment of relative peace. But the North Koreans have never known peace. What they have developed, what they have achieved has occurred under the most difficult conditions. And they did it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they are an advanced socialist economy with a state of the entire people and i agree with nuri and jeremiah what we want to say is this is not isolated this is a part the lessons of north korea in particular can be part of our understanding of the revolutionary process here. Uh, So I guess that's, I mean, we we kept coming back to it uh, because the story of the Korean people at at this time is the story of North Korea. I don't know how, that's the way I feel. Well, I
3: think Mm -hmm. last week when we were meeting, you asked us why we wanted to talk about North Korea, because I think all three of us like no we really do want to study the north like we don't really we don't want to do half north korean state half south korean state (laughs) like it's not like that that's not the how we see things and that's not how we feel about it either and so i think it's also an interest so yeah like i'm very i want to study north korea like that's partially why like a large reason why we really wanted to do this event um but i think something that's interesting that's come out of these discussions too is the fact that For whatever reason, like a lot of the immigrants, the Korean immigrants who have come to America have been shaped by certain forces and are in some ways like shaped to be pretty, I guess, reactionary or just closed. But the thing is, is that these immigrants are also part of the American people or part of the American people that have to become a people. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be an interesting exercise of not compromising on the principles or what we actually believe in, but still facing the fact that like, like it or not, like those people are also part of this American fabric and context that we're working in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, cause I think that's just part of like the reality of it. And so I think part of what we are also hoping is that this combined audience of particularly black America and Korean Americans will do, like it'll, I think it'll create something that makes sense when you think about the future of america like both sides have to be invested in it
1: to some extent
3: Um, and it'll be interesting that that work of basically something that matters to america and the american process will be happening through a discussion of korea and Korea.
4: yeah just just to, to add i think i guess my yeah my feeling about the event in, in the context of what Doc was saying and what Neary was saying is that in a lot of ways, like, yeah, like, Korean-Americans, many of them very traumatized, many of them also don't really know their history, especially the, like, the subsequent generations, because, like, our grandparents don't talk about the Korean War at all, really. Um, or at least mine mine don't, and I know a lot of other, like, people don't really hear about it, but like, ultimately, we, yeah, it feels like part of what we want to do is at a very basic level to propose, like, a new way of thinking, almost. Um, and, yeah, like, this framing of, like, the North as, like, the actually, like, the ones who are defending peace, rather than how they're portrayed as, like, the ones who are causing all the problems mm-hmm. in the Korean Peninsula and in East Asia, I think will be an important, like, proposition that we're putting forward and people can engage with it how they want to but we have to put it on the table because Mm -hmm. no one else is
2: Um,
4: and yeah so i mean yeah there's still a lot i think that we're working out and working through and um in the comments todd asked if there's a suggested reading list for the korean conference Mm -hmm. Um, we will be on that that will be coming
5: (laughs)
3: I this past week
6: we worked out the title and the whole basic of that experience.
2: Yeah. So we're yeah. Moving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Are there any questions? All right. That's um, just a report back. is um, going to Korea in a couple, few days.
1: Yeah. But yeah.
2: Jerry will be here. I will be here. Are you? Are you going away, Jerry? Okay, Jerry. So I guess it's me and Anna and then Zooming. We'll have to, you know, set up a good way to continue meeting and thinking this through. Okay. Um, if there are no questions, I guess we can get started with our agenda. Just a couple of quick things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as most people who follow the Ukraine war closely now know, Ukraine and the West is losing. But will they uh, admit it and try to negotiate some sort of settlement with Russia? And that's what has to take place. Um, the uh, The Ukrainian Army, which was far better, organized and far more powerful than anyone thought that I thought. And then with the heavy infusion of Western, especially American uh, military equipment, it became a formidable force. And um, Russia had to, in the past summer, change its approach from a special military operation which was really to uphold the Minsk Accords, that that is the the Russian speakers of the East have rights uh, and so on, to what is now uh, a proxy war between Russia and the West, but the United States in particular. Um, And in the wake of the uh, Russian attack upon the energy grid of Ukraine and so much of I would say more than 50% of it is knocked out. Uh, it is going to be a cold, dark winter for many Ukrainians, but it's going to be a very difficult time for the Ukrainian military because it relies upon trains that are powered by electricity, uh, but also so much of their military infrastructure has been destroyed. Uh, The Russians changed last summer, in the past summer, their approach to this war. There are now about a million Russian soldiers either in or poised to go into into Ukraine. I would only emphasize this is a war that the United States and NATO wanted. It is not clear to most people. However, there are commentators that have been saying this, and this is what is so extraordinary. I have to tell you guys, at the height of the war in Vietnam, there was some elite opposition, but nothing of this magnitude. John Mersheimer, the Emeritus, I think Emeritus Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, has said it over and over again, Jeffrey Sachs, who was not a friend of mine, uh, has gone into opposition, of course, uh, what is called the quote unquote, Republican right or the uh, Putin wing of the Republican Party, which is really uh, the Uh, I would say, pro-American anti-war part of the Republican Party uh, have been so vocal uh, in opposing this war, opposing the U.S. stoking war, and it is the United States, and it is the Biden administration. By the way, the most reckless, the most dangerous administration uh, in America's history. I mean, unequal, even, oh, I don't want to talk too emotionally, but even the Johnson administration that stepped up the war in Vietnam and got us on that path, to half a million U.S. troops in Vietnam, was not as reckless and dangerous as this Biden administration. And, you know, this is so important to know and to keep in mind in the face of all of this uh, uh, crap coming from the so-called uh, left wing of the democratic party, the so-called social democrats and so on uh, and, and the you know, those who are always hollering about who the fascists are. When in fact it is the Biden administration, because you don't separate if you want to talk about fascism. One of the the classic definitions is that it is the most warlike part of the ruling class. And I, I cannot emphasize enough: we are not out of the woods. The world is changing; the old world is dying, and unlike what Gramsci said, we see the new coming into being. This is why the Korean event is gonna be so very, very important. Uh, The new is coming into being, but the old is prepared to sacrifice a good part of humanity in a war of Armageddon to hold on, to be, to claim victory. They cannot win in Ukraine, but they wanna prolong the war. Now, why is this important today? The US has agreed to send Patriot missile defense systems to Ukraine. I wanna emphasize the Patriots are not just defensive missiles. It is a system that is offensive as well. And to put Patriots in Ukraine, is the very thing that triggered this war. The Russians said that they could not tolerate offensive nuclear weapons on their borders, able to hit the capital of Russia, that is Moscow, the Kremlin, in a matter of minutes. Now, it's not just giving these patriot missile systems to the ukrainians ukrainians don't know how to operate Mm -hmm. there it means americans there so we face a a new war it is very dangerous um the good thing is a slight majority that the republicans have in the house and the role of marjorie taylor green and others who are anti-war Republicans. And I don't think we should be afraid to say it. Uh, let the loud mouths say what they want to say. The truth will out. The truth The truth is the criteria. Let the truth be the judge of what is right and wrong politically. You see what I'm saying? Um, so I just wanted to bring that to us. We, As we read Black Reconstruction, as we do all that we're doing going forward, we must not lose sight of the world uh, that we live in and what we are struggling for. And uh, again, I, I just want to emphasize, let the loud mouths do what loud mouths do, you know, and that is talk a lot of trash. They have no philosophy or theory of history. They are, in fact, I think it is fair to say at this point, uh, I think Danny would agree with me very much here because I, I follow your posts very closely. <laughs> man. I'm very appreciative of your work, Danny. But that uh, that these so-called social Democrats and, the left wing of the Democratic Party are really anti-revolutionaries, in every respect. Um, identity politics, anti-revolutionary, and that's the judge. Not that you are I'm protesting because I'm an LGBTQ person and I've been, you know, when I was in school I was bullied. Okay, I'm down with you. I understand that, but that doesn't constitute you as a revolutionary. That means that you got a grievance. Good. But what constitutes a revolutionary position? The first thing is the fight against imperialist wars. If you on the side, as most of the labor leaders of this country are, sadly, sadly, if you on the side of war makers, you are in opposition to the class interests of the very people you claim to be representing, and I think we got to make it clear. And there's a there's a reason. I listen to a lot of what Emily says and her experiences, and I ask myself, well, why are these people, these so the staff and leaders of these various unions, are uh, so uh, vociferous, so uh, as they would say, so anxious. We are in a fight for this. Mm-hmm. and we. Wait a minute. If you are in a fight, just speaking logically, if you're in a fight for the working class, how are you supporting a regime that is totally committed to war and empire? Mm-hmm. And then you're going to support them electorally, which is not the final s- story anyway, just an election. You support them in every damn election? You knock on doors for them without asking the fundamental question of war and peace? That is betrayal of the working class. In fact, it is anti-revolutionary and I don't give a damn what they can protest for the UC houses out of 40th and Market. Yeah, all right, good. But to me, it is nothing but a way of, of, as they say, perpetrating a fraud. You you know, want to make it look like you care about the poor. And like Martin Luther King said, you cannot advance civil rights or the struggle against poverty without fighting war. And they never mention it. Oh, I did, you know, you say something about, oh, I didn't know that. Well, I'm telling you it now. Does that change your worldview? Oh, no, it doesn't. So it was useless speaking to them. The Biden administration, and I think we also—I mean, I talked to Jeremiah about this. You know, I I was very influenced by his observation of what candidate took what position on the Korean Peninsula in 2020, and to me, it—it was a deciding issue because of the concentration of nuclear weapons in that part of the world, the, the highest concentration. Submarines with nuclear weapons, aircraft carriers with nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons and missiles on, in, uh, in, in Japan, nuclear weapons and missiles in South Korea. But yet we're told that North Korea is the aggressor. And, uh, and so on, and it's never questioned, never questioned. So, you know, or, or take the war in Ukraine. How does a progressive labor leader not stand up and say that it is the US government that is provoking this war, not Russia? And you hear in the labor movement. And this is why it's very interesting, you all. You know, the ruling class has focused upon Black people in labor to create a leadership that is not in tune with the interests of their members. What we, This is why Glenn Ford came up with this name, the Black Misleadership Class. And they are a misleadership class. And the masses of Black people, I can tell you, are coming to see them as not just misleaders, but enemies of Black people. So much so, and this is just relative to Philadelphia, you know, you got nine people announced as candidates for mayor, which is a joke in and of itself. You know what I'm saying? But none of the Black candidates has gotten or will get the support of the Black masses. The masses of black people in Philadelphia will punish them for what they have done, for what they have done or not done to protect the interests of the black community. And I can, so, you know, they will not vote for them. I mean, it's not, some will, but it will not be a unanimous vote for the black candidates. So upset are we with their performance, their opportunism, they're talking out of both sides of their mouths, their incompetence, their joke character, their clown character. The same with the labor movement. The staff and a lot of the la- leaders of the labor, elected officials of labor uh, uh, unions look down upon their membership sees them as racist, sees them as fascists, and out the side of their mouth laugh at their members. You know what I'm saying? This is the state of so-called leadership and thank goodness spontaneously the people are seeking out new leaders. We'll we'll talk a lot about that. A lot we experience um in in our own um into action with various organizations. But we're faced with a great crisis of war and we can't take our eyes off that prize. We have to stay very focused. The other thing is in 2017, uh, according to law, all of the documents uh, concerning the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and that were collected by the commission, the Warren Commission, which was set up to study that assassination. All of that was supposed to be released in 2017, and even up till today, uh, but 40,000 documents remain redacted. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The American people have never accepted that John F. Kennedy's assassination was the work of one person, Lee Harvey Oswald, who shot one bullet.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, everybody suspects, and now some of the documents that have been released Mm -hmm. show that Lee Harvey Oswald was, if not completely handled by the CIA, was in conversation and communications with the CIA we all know and we don't have to have all of the facts and details that the assassination of john f kennedy a very popular president in november of 1963 a couple months the 19, his reelection campaign would begin you know for the 1964 election and he probably would have been re-elected he was very popular very articulate but he questioned uh, the military-industrial complex and these wars. He wanted to get out of Vietnam before it became, you know, just a disaster. Um, he did not fully support the invasion of Cuba by the what we call Gusanos or Worms or Counter-revolutionaries in 1961. Uh, And for those reasons, and others that we probably don't yet know about, concerning the US empire and the US military, he had to be taken out. Um, It was a coup. It was a coup d'etat. It was an overthrow, and then when you put this, uh, that whole decade together, starting with the assassination in 1963 of Medgar Evers, uh, the head of the NAACP in Mississippi, who was probably known to be a left winger and a radical, and then John Kennedy, then uh, Malcolm X, then Martin Luther King, then the Panthers in California, then Fred Hampton, I mean, come on. If people want to talk about fascism, uh, if, you know, first of all, you know, know, like, if I don't like you, oh, you're a fascist, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's like, um, I don't know what to, it's like calling a person a motherfucker, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Something (laughs) like that. I mean, to talk back, this is not the definition of fascism. Fascism is the takeover of the state. The U.S. state was taken over and has not been democratic since the 1960s. This is, on people don't realize this. And the counter-revolutionary configuration of the U.S. state reached a new level after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so everybody running around, oh, this is the greatest thing for democracy, including fucking friends of mine. You know, I can name them if you wish me to, but you know, and then members of the Communist Party that split in the Communist Party over whether or not the Soviet Union had to be brought down in the interest of peace and democracy, and I can name them—people I know. And and Gore, I mean, Putin is right about this. The greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And just like we talk about the North Korean state as the main guarantor of peace on the Korean Peninsula and probably in Asia more broadly, the Soviet Union was a guarantor of peace. And after that, the US ruling class proclaimed the end of history. Mm You know, and there, and thus the reconfiguration uh, of a trajectory of history, or without revolutionary and liberatory possibilities. The end of history meant a return to colonialism in a neo-colonial form. You want to understand the problem of India today? The collapse of the Soviet Union. You want to understand the problems of the World Peace Movement and why there is not one and why Russia had to go to war in Ukraine, the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know what I'm saying? Once the Soviet Union collapsed, the West, and by the West, we don't just mean all of these kind of vassal states like Germany and all these weak European uh, governments, We're talking really about the United States, which is the guarantor of Western imperialism. It is that which, that dream, or at least to thwart the possibility of peace and peaceful coexistence, that led to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And by the way, you know, his brother Robert running for president of the United States was assassinated almost a little less than two months after King. I mean, you know, even to think about and then how, you know, these again, these loud mouths can only, you know, all they have to say is we're fighting uh, for democracy against fascism. Well, you're fighting, you're looking in the wrong places. The regime change occurred in the 1960s and has gone forward since a decade of assassinations of important, critical public figures, including a president Mm -hmm. and his brother who's running for president, not to mention who we now call the father of the new American people. The truth that this was in fact a CIA, what we today call deep state engineered and carried out set of assassination is the fact that they will not release 40,000 pages. And we still don't know what was destroyed you know, just let me uh, just quickly. Um, Oswald was claimed to be the shooter. He was in this um, uh, book repository on the sixth floor. And as the Kennedy uh, motorcade came around, he allegedly shot Kennedy, one bullet, which I mean, it's just all the one bullet theory is just full of bullshit, you know. Uh, But he when he was arrested, he said, I'm a patsy, and he was, you know, there are all kinds of movements that he had going to the Soviet Union, claiming to be in the Fair Play for Cuba uh, movement, which was a pro Cuba anti US invasion, you know, so. You, it's 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 like we all, like they always do. They plant agent provocateurs in order to provide a cover for them. Oh, he couldn't be with the CIA. He was a an advocate of Soviet communism, but that was just the front. Then, I guess two or three days after he's arrested and they're taking him to a hearing. They got two guys on the side, and he's standing right there. And Jack Ruby, a mafiosa and a a club owner, bar owner, comes up to him and shoots him right there. Bam, bam, bam. The guy, what? So this is the cat, the evidence, and he had something. He said he didn't do it. You know, he was a patsy. He was being used. Boom, he's gone and then the rest is history the cover up for the last 60 some years and it has been a cover up and it continues to be a cover up and but we can, and this must be put forward i mean this this narrative in relationship to the claim that fascism is in the maga movement mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying rather than the maga movement as a representation of the discontent and dissatisfaction of American people. Mm-hmm. It's fascist. Well, what was that bullshit back in the 60s? And who covered it up and why has it been covered up? So I bring that and and, and contrary to the propaganda, it is the consolidation of state power in the hands of the most reactionary war-oriented forces in American society. That is the story that must be told. It ain't no, this is a long process. You know, you had to destroy all the movements. You had to turn the labor movement into trash, really, an arm of the Democratic National Committee. Billions and billions and billions of dollars to Democratic candidates in the name of labor while you ain't organized a a a toothpick. The, The numbers of people in labor unions have declined at the same time the labor movement gives more money to the Democratic Party. Who are these people? And why should we accept their narrative, their leadership, in fact, I would go as far, just like we condemn the Black leadership class, and <laughs> quite as a skip, I don't want none of them to win anything. Mm-hmm. Traitors to our people, and you see it right here in Philadelphia. Why should anybody, because people claim to be labor leaders, give them the benefit of the doubt?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They constitute a necessary arm. Mm-hmm of american imperialism and american empire and try to act like well all we're concerned with is our members you see what i'm saying
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's bullshit it's bullshit and i've seen the havoc that that has produced in the left i saw the havoc it produced in the communist party you know uh, after the collapse of the soviet union all of this um what do you call Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, if I had known, I misled. I'm looking at these fucking people. I mean, what what didn't you know? Oh, Stalin. Oh, yeah, uh, you know, all these fucking crocodile tears. And then, you know, by the time they get to you all, your generation, you know, they're, you know, uh, they're they're so committed to the fight against fascism that they can talk to anybody any way they want. They have a right. I'm I'm fighting for the working but You ain't fighting for nothing, and that's what we have to establish. But I just wanted to bring those things to the table. Mm-hmm. The great counter revolution occurred in that ninth, in that period in the 1960s, a, a decade of assassinations, Mm -hmm. public assassinations,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: public. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I mean, it's just like, I remember, if I could just, I'll tell the story. I remember when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, the whole, I mean, it went into a deeper mourning, grieving than after Mm
1: 9-11.
2: The country, no, I know I was 16 or so. I couldn't believe, I mean, how did this happen to such what we thought of as a good man, you know, a decent president? How could it happen that somebody assassinated him? And then, of course, by the time a king was assassinated, you know, we had become um, prepared for assassinations. It was no longer shocked you knew that if you stood up, you would be killed. And um, yeah, this is, I'll just stand. I don't want to say anything. Jerry, you want to say something? Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
7: Yeah, I guess um, one thing that uh, came to my attention uh, not too long ago about uh, the John F. Kennedy uh, administration was Mm -hmm. the, uh, I think it's called Operation Northwoods which was a plan by the CIA to uh, basically blow up uh, hotels in Miami and blow up a cruise uh, ship that, was, that had American citizens in it. I mean, basically assassinate American citizens at large and try to blame the Cuban government about
1: this. Right.
7: And this, uh, this made its way all the way up to Kennedy's desk. Mm-hmm. So everyone down the line had agreed, this is what we need to do mm-hmm. to get public support to mm-hmm. invade mm-hmm. Cuba. And it took Kennedy saying, "No, this is crazy. I don't trust yeah. you guys. This is an yeah. insane thing right. to ask me to yeah. do," and that's what it, that's what leadership requires in many respects right. is recognizing yeah. that this is a war that we're we're fighting a group of people who are hell bent on on continuing this imperial uh,
1: mm-hmm.
7: operation. Um, and so, I mean, obviously, the consequences of him hesitating or putting up any kind Absolutely. of uh, wall at all about this was his life. And his brother who was running, who was also assassinated, was trying to reopen the investigation, Uh which again was handled by heads of the FBI who were clear enemies towards uh, the president that that was murdered. And then the magic bullet theory, I I believe that that was something that was proposed by Arlen Specter, who was the Senator of Pennsylvania for Mm -hmm. 30 years, who's not a weapons expert, who's not a physicist, not an engineer, he's a lawyer. So like, why is it that there's a lawyer who's deciding how the, this bullet is going to move in air and bounce off of Because mm-hmm. I believe it went through two bodyguards as well. This is the, thing. This is the official <laughs> idea of how this happens, right? Bounced off the knee and went through the bone. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely insane. Absolutely, but this is officially yeah. what the yeah. idea is we're supposed yeah. to believe. Um, so I mean, yeah, it's very concerning that these these documents haven't come out, but I mean, at this point, there's so much smoke surrounding the situation. We have to be, it would be very um, illogical at this point to assume there's no fire mm-hmm. concerning the, the uh, national security apparatus that, that uh, seems to have a authoritarian and dictatorship control of our, our public space. And no better way to see that than we see how senators vote in this country.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean,
7: if you look at, you know, you want to support funding for Ukraine? Does that look like a democratic thing when it's like 99 to one voting for something? And it's always this way across the board on these particular issues. Is that, I mean, what, what looks more authoritarian to you, you know, when there's a country of 350 million people and 99.9% of leadership votes in this clear direction every single time. And when you poll any part of this country, you're going to get the vast majority of people saying, no, I don't want my, my money going there. Why would I want my money going there? So it's like, what, what what do we actually expect of an authoritarian government yeah
5: mm-hmm. um,
7: so that's that's just kind of what I another thing about the ukraine uh, situation mm-hmm. is that you know, I think we all would love to see some sort of peace agreement, peace settlement, but something recently that came out was uh, two different interviews that uh, Angela Merkel gave, who was the former chancellor of Germany, um, who was part of this uh, Minsk and Minsk II accords that was trying to broker peace between those, that civil war that's happening in Ukraine. Um, and what her role was, I mean, it's, it's called the Normandy format, where both sides come together, but they have arbiters who can sort of keep both parties in line with with following the protocols in the agreement and so her as well as the president of france was there and putin was there and they were all supposed to basically give limitations and and and, and give reasons and try to prevent people from from uh, not responding well she admitted in these two interviews that it was never about peace that they just wanted to buy time so that they could arm ukraine and get ready for the bigger war now there's some question as to whether as she's telling the truth there is some question of, Maybe she's saying this now for political points, and maybe she was somewhat consistent in trying because she did try to have this pipeline built in Russia. But nonetheless, saying these things out loud publicly, uh, you know, the next day Putin comes out and says, how can I possibly trust anything these people say? I mean, they're clearly every time we we hear something new about what we had just agreed upon. So, like, it seems hard that, you know, we work with someone such with such um, bad faith like how how does Russia broker a new deal when the last two deals they brokered are now admittedly just used to uh invite more violence into the situation so um I mean that's that's the real crisis in leadership is no one trusts them um and they seem uh totally unaware of the consequences of having no one trust them mm. because they're just doubling and tripling down
0: um, but yes.
2: yeah yeah. Anybody?
0: Oh,
2: go ahead, Did you have your hand? Yeah. Well, Samir. Yeah. And, and, and Samir. Let Jerry go and
4: then Samir. Um, I was going to say about JFK, because people don't know he was assassinated in Dallas, which is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And there's like a museum in the building, mm-hmm. like the Sixth Floor Museum, which is the building where allegedly um, Oswald shot Kennedy from, but like they made a museum out of it. Mm-hmm. and. One thing to note about that location, like there's like an X actually on the road for like the yeah. specific location where Kennedy was shot. Um, that's weird. But I mean, it's like it's like to sort of, uh, I guess commemorate it, but it's a really busy part of yeah, Dallas. Like amazing. it's like, like right in downtown. Like a and like to what Doc was saying about this being a public thing, it's like, I, I think people like I didn't fully understand this until seeing some of like the footage of it like the footage of him actually being shot but it's, it's almost like it does feel like almost like a public
1: yeah. execution, execution basically yeah.
4: and, yes. it, and exactly. I think yes. it was intended to send a message mm-hmm. to yeah. like any basically like any politicians who might like actually be interested in peace or might be interested in yeah. some kind of detente with the Soviet Union at the time, which I guess, yeah, Kennedy had like complicated, a complicated record, complicated history. Like he was involved in like the, the sort of, what was it, the Bay of Pigs, but then mm-hmm. didn't fully know all the details mm-hmm. had also like a really, really bitter, um, basically like there was like, a feud going on between him and the Dulles brothers yeah. uh-huh. and the State Department and the CIA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the Dulles brothers was on the Warren Commission, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. or at least someone in, like, mm-hmm. the CIA, basically, was yeah, on the yeah. Warren Commission. Um, and, yeah, there's, like, I don't know if people have seen, but there's this Oliver Stone documentary mm-hmm. called JFK yes. Revisited mm-hmm. um, that he, I think, was produced, like, pretty recently, but it's, like, it's kind of long, like, parts of it kind of feel like a history channel documentary, but mm-hmm. it, like, it is very informative of, like, exactly how improbable this whole magic Bullet theory is. Mm-hmm. In terms of like yeah, like one bullet like bouncing around like every different part of the his body mm-hmm. also hitting other yeah, things
1: they like animated it
4: yeah it's like literally not physically possible but also that there's like a chain of custody issue where like basically they like lost the bullet but then not found it again all this stuff and it's very like like it is it's like like this is like the origin of like I think Tucker Carlson pointed this out but like this is the origin of like conspiracy theories in American yeah. discourse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, but yeah, also Oliver Stone makes, in addition to that stuff, but he also makes the point about, um, that this was, like, the political context surrounding Kennedy, like, him wanting to pull out of Vietnam before, as Doc was saying, um, and then basically his increasing, um, desire to break up the CIA, Mm -hmm. and, yeah, I think it, it is like, interesting to think about, like, what America would have been mm-hmm. if, you know, leaders like Kennedy had continued to, like, lead the U.S. or, mm-hmm. obviously, if King had lived. Um, and, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, like, I wasn't alive at the time, but I think, like, I don't know how much, yeah, I don't know how much the Kennedy assassination, like, affected everyone in the country, but I do think that there is a fundamental, like, because, yeah, like, we were talking about, like, trauma and stuff earlier, but I think like yeah there's a way that the american people like have not been able to fully process all these things Mm -hmm. um and the fact that they happen in broad daylight like in full view of everyone like it is both traumatizing but also like there has to be a way for americans to actually like go through that process of like grieving these things even though it happened so long ago Mm
2: -hmm. um
4: and to come to some kind of like like, resolution on this, both both emotionally but also politically. Like, what are the actual lessons of this? And can there be, yeah, like, any kind of democratic um, process if basically the American people are kept in the dark about all this? And Mm -hmm. I think Tucker pointed out that um, there had been, like, a Senate, like, a congressional investigation into Mm -hmm. this after the Warren Commission, Mm -hmm. which basically said, like, this was a cover-up. It was a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And we don't know exactly who did it, but some like forces were involved. And yeah, they were trying to pin it on the Soviet Union, but like actually Oswald was like working with like the state department and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know. It, it's just, it, if people ever get the chance to go to Dallas, it's like, it's pretty interesting. Cause they, they go through a lot of the, um, like the conspiracy, but the controversy and like how this was like affecting the American people um and yeah i feel like like our generation doesn't really hear about it that much or it's just like a fact of history they hear about mm-hmm. but actually has a lot of deep yeah. implications for like where we are today and yeah basically like can like is america a democracy under these conditions like do you actually call it, like do the american people themselves think of this as a democracy like when presidents can be taken out in yeah. broad daylight
2: yeah um, yeah, but yeah. But, you know, just if I could just say one thing, you know, this is very important because, you know, I I gave an interview with Glenn Ford, I think 2017. I said that Trump is the most pro-peace president since John F. Kennedy. Oh, God, how could I say that, Uh, you know? But, you know, there are certain things called litmus tests and there are parallels between the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the political assassination of Donald Trump.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: they always have to do with foreign policy. You could call for, you know, Medicare for all and you know all you know uh, the rights of gay marriage and <laughs> interracial marriage. In 2020, we still talk you know, in a racial marriage <laughs> where people ain't getting married nowhere, they're living together, you know? so, so it's all bullshit, we know that, to cover up the war agenda, and there is a war agenda, as we talked about, and um, I guess my anger, I'm more angry at the so-called left, right? Than I am at the ruling class. I expect that. Mm-hmm. But you uh bums and assholes are literally running interference right. mm-hmm. and are that conveyor belt into the masses, justifying a regime of war. But go ahead, Samir, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um I was gonna say a couple of things, but
8: Jeremiah brought up the origin of the um, vernacular conspiracy theory mm-hmm. comes from people who questioned the Warren Commission. Yes. Uh, and Mark Crispin Miller, who's a professor at NY, I uh, don't know if he's still a professor anymore, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, he's suing his administrators for uh, libel or libel. Um, but he he actually traces it back to the 1930s. As the communist conspiracy, and then it becomes it keeps morphing into you know JFK uh, you know deniers or you know 9/11 deniers, Um, and I guess it continues its trend through history into people who questions uh, coronavirus. Those people are um, labeled conspiracy theorists, and it's almost like a form of uh, red baiting, and so I thought of that when you said people are name called ad hominem. Oh, you are a fascist. No evidence provided. <laughs> Not you are a fascist because <laughs> you're enabling fascists. And um, I'm I I've listened to um, Doc, your friend Aaron Good, and I think you have an interview with Aaron Good, and I find him to be uh, interesting because he's local to Temple, um, but he ha- he takes this position where. Donald Trump is, uh, and I think other people on the left do as well, Donald Trump is uh, not part of the deep state or not in conflict with the deep state. Like the elite part have picked him, or he might say these things about purging the swamp or cleaning the swamp, or my favorite, Mike, deep state Pompeii. <laughs> these, Donald Trump will say these things, and uh, those people... We'll say, oh, but if it's right-wing conspiracy theorizing, we're okay with that vernacular now. Um, it's it's unacceptable. And uh, I just don't understand why you wouldn't want to reach across the so-called aisle to um, people who are questioning the official narrative, even though it seems like a lot of it, there's no smoking gun. Instead of a materialist analysis, people are using... Um, idealism and are relying a lot uh, into uh, Christianity or holistic medicine.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah that's all I can say.
9: Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about how you know some of these stories about assassinations, you know, general things that the deep state has been involved in which is really unpardonable. A lot of these the just the sheer ridiculousness of the stories they come up with such a put down on people, on ordinary people, because you know you're working from the assumption then that we don't deserve the truth. And even if we were staring the truth in the face, we wouldn't be able to recognize it anyway because you know people are so stupid and just 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 undeserving of knowing what the truth is. And this is really a whole different framework of operating and thinking about people than you know what we expect when we you know, which we expect when we study like the world anti-colonial movement and the black freedom struggle and you know the Indian struggle and so on. I was also thinking about the assassination of Indira Gandhi in this yes. context, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, Indira Gandhi because she was one of the she was the strongest leader that like you know India had, but then before her and after her, two other Prime Ministers in India were assassinated. Um, Indira's son, Rajiv Gandhi, mm-hmm. was assassinated yeah. a few years yeah. after she was. Yeah. But even before that, there there was another Prime Minister who died under mysterious circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this is like, because, I, because we spent this entire year reading deeply about that period, it was a period with so much possibility, like this country. And all of Afroasia, for that matter, was suffering so much from centuries of, you know, exploitation and just humiliation. And this was a moment where some, there was a real possibility that, okay, you know, something good can be done for the people. And you know, they were doing good work. They tried to raise people out of poverty. And then you take the leaders away from the people. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, you can't expect that there won't be a reckoning for
1: this. Yeah. Yeah, uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead
8: oh I forgot to say, um, I read uh James Douglas's, I think that's his name, book, uh, JFK and the Unspeakable, and uh, he also has another book called Gandhi and the Unspeakable that I haven't read. Uh, but James Douglas goes deep into the, the history and talks about how uh, JFK. Um, James Douglas alleges was supposed to be assassinated in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And there are all these parallels between um, the Chicago police that assassinated Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that uh, from James Douglas's book, uh, Lee Oswald uh, possibly saved JFK's life once in, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for that reason, I think, you know, Harry Lee Oswald is, is a little bit of a hero. And, um, you know, and also Aaron Mate had this exchange on Twitter uh, where there's a, a famous picture of JFK getting the news that Lumumba had been shot, and there's mm-hmm. just a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. JFK gets the news that Lumumba had been mm-hmm. killed, not shot, mm-hmm. and um, assassinated. And there's, it's a really painful expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aaron Mate uh, sort of dismisses it and says, oh, it's probably Make, and I sort of lost a lot of respect for Aaron Mate, because I have a lot of respect for JFK's principled position. Yeah, mm-hmm. and what we
2: what we back then called peaceful coexistence. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, two distinct systems that exist peacefully would be would have been, in effect, the end of the Cold War as we come to know it. You know, it was it was completely different. Uh, that principled kind of negotiated peace de- to nuclear weapons, destruction of nuclear weapons, a whole set of um, a treaties and so on, uh, as different as day and night from what Gorbachev did,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which, which I mean, leads me almost to believe as not a conspiracy theory, that Gorbachev and at the, at the top of the leadership of the Soviet state, They've been penetrated by Western intelligence. But go for I'm sorry. Oh,
8: just then, one uh, to add that, uh, yeah, uh, JFK outlines his vision in the commencement speech at American right. University. Mm-hmm. And he's just such a great orator. It's it's one of the top 10 speeches given by American mm-hmm. president. Mm-hmm. You know, up, you know up yeah. well, a lot of his speeches and operations. Speech. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and the way they uh, present presidents after him especially Reagan and Obama, is in that kennedy mold. Yeah, with the family. Yeah, family, but also energetic, young. Uh, you know, Reagan wasn't that young, but, you know, makeup can do wonders for <laughs> <to> you. <laughs> but he, uh, but it's that kind of uh, leader that they, and he was the model, and he wasn't, wasn't branding in Hollywood? Mm-hmm. That's the way he was. Yeah. Uh, but, no, yeah.
7: I was actually just gonna ask you who's Aaron
8: Mate. Oh, uh, he's on the Gray Zone with Max mm-hmm. blumenball mm-hmm. and he does a lot of stuff on RussiaGate. Gate, mm-hmm. and I think he also is on Katie Halper's podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's all on YouTube. You gotta be into YouTube. Yeah. yeah, but I hear you know something, YouTube is about 95% white male. Oh, that you are gonna say <laughs> Yes. <algorithm. laughs> I mean, huh? no. Same
10: thing. <laughs> yeah,
2: but uh, you don't see, there are no women hardly. What's no. the algorithm? Maybe that's your
11: yeah. algorithm.
3: Yeah, because
5: my <laughs> algorithm is You're like sugar. all people of color. Well, yeah, I Oh, <laughs> well, um, okay. Well, you don't, you don't got to expose none <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
3: like, No, no, you write the mainstream like, part
2: of YouTube where people get recommended. They will. It'll be like a lot of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like Aaron Maté, the Grey Zone. You can get a lot of information from them. Even, you know, of oh. uh, Alexander McCouris and all of that. It's it's a white dialogue, a white discourse, white male discourse. But, you know, there's information but it's just like you say about Aaron Mate. but they have certain interests, certain ideological positions. And um, I th- I'll tell you the truth. I think they're hooked in with this general left thing of, the, of we're fighting for democracy against fascism, domestic fascism and terrorism. And once they go there, I can no longer trust them.
7: I don't know if Aaron Mate qualifies as much as that. I think that was a split yeah. in the gray zone between Aaron yeah. yeah. Max Blumenthal, and this other figure. See, ben Norton is his North
5: name. North. Yeah. <laughs> they're all, I think, yeah, like, hold they're all independent journalists. Yeah.
7: And
8: they had this feud. And it was basically oh, yeah. about oh, yeah. Trump and, and the vaccine yeah, they did situation. of the Tucker protests in Canada. Yeah. So I don't know if Aaron Mate oh, did in-person oh, interviews, but Max Blumenthal definitely oh, did oh, in-person oh, interviews oh, with... Um, I
2: think Ben Norton went over to uh, Danny High Farm.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 He started this. Uh, Danny has
2: blown up, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: yes. Wait.
2: But uh, let's, let's, oh, few, oh, I'm sorry. There's oh, go, a comments. Oh, go 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 ahead, um, James, um,
4: <laughs> Someone on Facebook uh-huh. whose Facebook uh-huh. name is Decisive. Say that again. someone oh, on like Facebook like, who's, facebook name is decisive i don't know Mm -hmm. but um they said that uh they're i think they're like critical about whether jfk's assassination Mm -hmm. was actually a big deal um but they're saying when jfk was assassinated were folks in the streets in mourning or up in arms to defend their elected president i don't recall much beyond the orchestrated funeral proceedings and the cancelling of sporting events were there heightened tensions regarding the continuity of the state and governance was there a crisis of the state? Yeah. So basically, saying like, was it was it actually like a crisis um, when JFK yeah. this? Mm-hmm. I guess this was assassinated? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then someone else named Ferguson Capers on Facebook says, "Wouldn't JFK have been vetted every bit as much as say someone like Obama prior to his election?" Um, which I think actually it's a good question because it raises the fact that after World War II, mm-hmm. like the U.S. state was consolidating right. and basically deciding which direction it was going to go. Right. And you had like the collapse of all of these Western imperialist empires and colonialism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at this time. And basically like, was the US going to try to salvage the remains of that, or was it going to try to chart a new path? Mm-hmm. And I think that the fact, yeah, it's like the CIA was founded like literally like right after World War yeah. II. Yeah. So all of these things were like yeah. in motion. And I don't yeah. think that anything was ever set especially mm-hmm. like like with the whole world that was changing mm-hmm. there was a possibility of yeah like peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union. I don't think that like Kennedy was like fully mm-hmm. decided but was moving towards that and yeah I think that it's 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 interesting to think about like actually maybe things weren't as like coordinated back then mm-hmm. as they are now oh, no yeah. question
2: the mm-hmm. state and you're right Jerry uh, to the to the yeah. person that wrote it you know um, it was, a consolidation of state power
1: mm-hmm.
2: to what we see it as today, which raises the question, and it, it is a long process, but they had to clear the deck, the ruling class, get all of these Martin Luther Kings, Malcolm X's, John Kennedy, get all of that out of the way. And then, okay, now we can have elections like we want to have them, Or, but uh, the long process of, of the united states becoming actually a state authoritarianism really and that's what we live under and if you look at the media if you look at higher education if you look at the ideological domination of the views of the ruling class that's and i think if we see the Kennedy assassination as the beginning of that, mm-hmm. we can better understand where we are. I would just say the other thing is the collapse of the Soviet Union, which then they just went buck wild crazy because there was no counterweight. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh,
12: yeah, I, I just wanted to add, because those two comments I think are enlightening, because like, I never really thought of the assassination of JFK and all those assassinations together as the beginning of, the beginning of something in America. And I feel like it's important to view it as that because these comments are kind of, there's a little bit of skepticism of like, Mm -hmm. but you need to acknowledge JFK's assassination as a change. It was necessary and it was a dramatic change um, like it was a huge counter-revolutionary moment because yeah. it's what leads. Yeah. First of all, it also sets the stage for Trump. Why Trump is so dangerous to the ruling mm-hmm. class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it also warns you of what people will want to do to him right. because he is not backing down. He's not just saying, okay, I lost in 2020, like even though it was hazy, I'm going to give up. He's saying like, I, I'm going back in in 2024 because people aren't happy and I owe it to them. But then I also think the second thing is like, if you don't acknowledge Like if you don't see America as like a history that has been moving, then you're also taking away the agency of the people to do anything about it. And that's the whole point of Gerald Horne's settler settler colonial thesis because it's the same thing if you don't acknowledge that JFK's assassination was on purpose and meant to do something to the people, to stun the people, for King's assassination to traumatize the people. If you don't see it like that then you're just accepting that america has been ruled by the deep state since day one right. that a deep state existed day one we've been like that the people have been without power since day one and so to this day the people have no power and we're just going to be pawns yeah. like in yeah. reckless war regimes but that's also why i think it was important that you started off this preschool with talking about the context like you called it the crisis of war mm-hmm. like the context of the crisis of war but also what The ruling class, the deep state, this consensus, this basically fascist consensus of intelligence agencies, like politicians who are in office and willing to sign off on Mm -hmm. like JFK sign off on reckless war acts, not willing to do anything for the people, even locally. Like, you know, you see statistics in Philadelphia saying, oh, good news in 2022, homicides are down by 8%. But then you read the fine print, it says, but shootings are at a higher percent so you're basically saying non-fatal shootings are at a high higher percent but hom- fatal shootings are at a lower percent that's still not good there are more people shooting they just have bad aim i guess <laughs> and and so it's like yeah you need the context because you need to be able to actually understand the historical development of the u.s in order to understand what the people need to do and are capable of doing um because otherwise if you just think jfk was just like Some blip and a whatever, like some one person deciding I don't like this guy, let me shoot him. Mm -hmm. Then you're you're not like understanding the real like historical development of the US and what the people like have the agency to do.
2: And can I just say one thing? Yeah. And that one shooter was allegedly connected to the Soviet Union and Mm -hmm. Cuba. Right,
1: right.
2: So convenient.
1: Yep. So convenient. Yep.
2: Killing a president who was attempting to unveil a policy of peaceful coexistence mm-hmm. with the Soviet Union and broken a deal
1: mm-hmm.
2: with Khrushchev over Cuban missiles, which prevented a nuclear war.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, so a friend of Cuba and a friend of the Soviet Union kills this president? No, so. you see what I'm saying? Yeah.
12: And the other reason why it sets the stage for today is because
2: mm-hmm.
12: you like, once you realize everything JFK was uncomfortable doing, you, you have to ask the question, you have to ask the question of the people who have occupied the presidential office ever since then. That's what were Absolutely. they willing to do? Mm-hmm. Like by Think about Biden, like what, obviously what is he willing to do to That's like right. sign off on recklessly Absolutely. just so that he doesn't get assassinated? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Um,
5: Absolutely.
12: And I also think it becomes interesting. And I think
2: the way to judge the Biden administration is through the lens of the assassination of Kennedy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you
2: look at the two moments, you know, and these are two moments, uh, the rise of the Biden administration and the assassination of Kennedy. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: They're in the Democratic Party, but they're different as day and night. Yes, Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes.
2: So, but I'm, I'm sorry i interrupted you sorry no no it. Mm-hmm.
12: it's just also interesting because like i feel like in black reconstruction the importance of the chapter the counter-revolution i forget what it's called the counter-revolution of property yes it's also you need to understand that in america like it's kind of interesting to think about like revolution counter-revolution Absolutely. in the 60s like that great period of a broadening revolutionary period and what it took to what it took like to really put it down the huge counter-revolutionary moment. And now here we are today, like the possibility of even like larger, a larger revolutionary period and what the U S needs to do, whether it's Ukraine or in the U S with Trump, like the way they need to, like start producing this idea that like every American is white supremacist. Every American is fascist. Every American mm-hmm. just in mm-hmm. their DNA mm-hmm. cannot mm-hmm. be trusted. Mm-hmm. So who we need to trust is the administration of the United States, the Biden administration. Like there's a lot going on, I think, to really neutralize the people from doing anything. Yeah.
13: yeah, That's the one thing that this whole conversation is making me think of the importance of ideological clarity again,
5: oh. because
13: it's really like when truth at essence is totally erased is is really dangerous
2: but mm-hmm.
13: i'm gonna bring up what you said over the phone with me um because you were talking about uh one of the looking back for a chapter in black reconstruction about mm-hmm. how like um but also the point you're getting at with your experience with your union workers looking to black people for um mm-hmm. a certain answer or a certain way to think about mm-hmm. the situation that all people mm-hmm. are in right now. And why would or how could um I guess in this sense it's just not like an essentialist thing, but it's just like why how could black people know uh, the long game?
5: Mm-hmm.
13: Um, mm-hmm. And like you also told we were also thinking about how like i don't know exactly how you put it i forget exactly how you put it it was like um instead of like just going to the government like there's a certain like non-traditional way of uh resolving the like the problem at hand or Mm -hmm. seeing a way out of the crisis and so that just makes me think about how right now it seems like and it is as such mm-hmm. um, that this period that we're referring to, the 1960s moving forward, is trying to make a, a society with people who can't do anything or fight for themselves, like they um, were are trapped, like they're trapped um, and can't move forward. Um, and yeah, I, I I wanted to bring that up, but you could probably
12: say it better than. Me. Yeah, well, because what we're talking about was basically, like, Du Bois isn't here, and I think it's proven even more so in the civil rights movement, or just the 60s, 70s, and even today, it's like, African Americans in this country are the most organized people. Like, Mm -hmm. there's no, you cannot make any other argument. They're the most organized, they have the capacity to, like, just literally organize. Any effective model of any organizing has to come from, honestly, like, the Black radical tradition. And which also I think goes to our conversation of this counter revolutionary period. Why is it so? Why has it been so critical to figure out ways to, what's the word, disunify? Like mm-hmm. divide the black community. Right. Because if you neutralize the black community, you neutralize the American people. I agree with that. Yeah. And that is something you have to ask for today. When there's a possibility of a people to be born, a people who will all say, like, You don't rule me like you are a dysfunctional government i do not support you sending money to (laughs) ukraine like you you have there's a possibility something there's a reason why there's such a need to divide 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 not just the black community but the black community from other communities who are ready who are ready to take power who are ready to like even psychologically as people be free like you know even mentally like mentality wise be free of the way they've been taught to live, the way they've been taught to talk to other people. And I feel like that's what Du Bois shows in Black Reconstruction. Like there's so much depth in this book that I think I wasn't prepared for all the times. So, like, I've read this book at least like many chapters, maybe three times. And I don't think I was ever ready to read it until now. And I think that's interesting too, where, yeah, Du Bois says, Du Bois was like, during the civil war, The problem is is the problem is that like all these white workers, all these white poor people, the sons of planters who have nothing anymore because the civil war, like the North has won. In the South, all these white workers, they don't know what to do with themselves. And Du Bois says, he's like, they know how to report poverty, homelessness issues to the government, but they don't know how to organize themselves. And isn't it interesting that it's actually the formerly enslaved people, African-Americans who should be the ones who have nothing, but what they have is the ability to organize. They're the ones who know how to take charge. And I think that still exists today. And I feel like that's the question, like that's the exciting possibility for today, which is like, is there a way, like what are people missing, whether it's knowledge or to, what are the tools people are missing to organize, to like, to see the future, like the long game. But that's what's being neutralized. Yes, exactly. And
13: that's, what, that's the whole, okay, assassinations, mm-hmm. um, like, I would also make a parallel that the, uh, an example of a high, um, highly organized situation was the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. and King being at uh, King being the center of that philosophically, ideologically, um, and so on. And, uh, you know, it could be said, like with when he died, like the vision was over and or whatever, like that. But um, there's two things to that. Obviously, one, no, because his ideas are still around. But two, how exactly will there become? Will there be a way to get to those ideas again? Right. Um, right. And I think that ha- it's not solely a question of. Like the ideological
1: Mm.
13: um, uh, dogmatisms and counter revolutionary bullshit that universities want to put out and media (laughs) that they want to put out to people. And all the, um, it's not exactly just pointing the finger at this point, at least in my understanding in preschool, that, you know, culture has been putting out counter revolutionary things. But I think that it could be also stated that. We're coming or we have come to a certain moment where syntheses have been kind of been made. There's been assumptions about what is wrong inherently mm-hmm. um, it, or things that aren't going to be accepted in some ways, mm-hmm. whether that be through our talking mm-hmm. over Kanye or whether that be through our understanding of Trump and the very various um Responses that people have to that. So basically, um, yeah, I just, yeah.
9: Are you
13: done? Go ahead. (laughs) No, I just, I I mean, I didn't, it's nothing like that. It's just, it's interesting. It's just interesting.
2: Um, Can I just ask hmm. a question? I'm almost unclear about what you were saying. Do you feel? That a, a part of the ideological struggle is the recovery of King. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I just I was unclear.
13: No, mm-hmm. I didn't say mm-hmm. that you move on without. Mm-hmm. No, no, no I just didn't say move like the center.
2: Yeah, of yeah, I was just wondering because it's it's very important that we understand what are the central mm-hmm. aspects of the ideological right. struggle right. at this time, mm-hmm. you know, which, yeah, but I'll come back. Oh, go, go, no, you go, go, go. No, I'm because sorry. that's mm-hmm. not what,
13: I'm not trying to say you move on without
2: King. No, 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 I don't think you said that.
13: And I don't you saying that. I was you, just
2: wondering how you connected the ideological struggle to the recovery of King. Mm-hmm.
13: Well, well, see, that's, that's the thing, though. Uh, 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 that, I, that's, that has to mm-hmm. that's part of something that we're doing mm-hmm. that's, that's part of right. something that mm-hmm. is in process mm-hmm. But see how both see there's two things happening mm-hmm. as we are putting on these conferences for instance mm-hmm. and people are responding to them and uh, there's, it's just like the world is moving as well as we are so that I can't answer but I know that we Like you continue, Mm -hmm. we continue to understand more deeply and give what was already said in Mm -hmm. that sense. In that sense, Mm -hmm. um, because one of the things that we don't reject in the free school is history at all. (laughs) And any person needs to know history to understand themselves, Um, even if there are different philosophical changes or whatever Mm -hmm. about life and things like that mm-hmm. um the period that we're talking about is the period of our parents mm-hmm. the period of our grandparents and the reasons why um for example um like our like my dad would um like there's a reason why he thinks the way he does and the reason why i think the way that i do yeah, and what you could say that only really because I come, you know, I've been coming to free school and things like that. But there's also a chance of me not coming to the free school and what I would think. And now the the generation that I'm thinking of also has, you know, this thing about trauma. And you 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 know, a person would give up. They would be like, oh, "Don't mm-hmm. tell you know everything that we tried. Yeah. It was sucked. We didn't do it. it. Can't work. You can't do it.
5: Mm-hmm.
13: Get a job. Make sure things work, mm-hmm. and keep mm-hmm. moving." Yeah, and so. Mm-hmm basically um what i'm saying is that you can't tell at least at base okay you can't tell that to a child at all and child figure out what you know it needs to do to keep moving forward and i still kind of agree with the fact and this is me being way theoretical that i need to be of course because i'm this type of person i don't mean to be but um (laughs) But I, I'm, I think I'm just more passionate about the fact that, um, there like, there's still I and I always. This is what I always come to when I get this way, is that there's still a way out. Oh,
2: definitely. Um,
13: definitely.
2: And okay. you have to figure it out. But that, yes, that's the great
13: mm-hmm. struggle. But but what I wanted. Um, or like what I want to point out by suggesting the conversation that I have with Emily is the fact that um, this stage of consolidating and consolidation of the U.S. state to be counter-revolutionary and is counter-revolutionary and authoritarian now has created um, people older yeah. than us that do not believe in the future at
2: all or, mm-hmm. could not mm-hmm. or have less
13: capacity to. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. That's, that's mm-hmm. not helpful, or, and no. it is a problem.
2: No, and it's a put-down, and it's saying to young people, well, everything failed. You all don't worry about it. Just get a job. Exactly. And you've been told that. I, but look, me, uh, no, look, but look, look, look. I just
13: wanted to say also mm-hmm. because in a time when you should be able to think, right. have free thoughts, in a time when you mm-hmm. should be able to create and create freely, um, you know, when the state becomes so entwined with the person, it's very confusing to know what the right thing is to do and how to, <laughs> you, you know, move and operate. When the iPhone is always right here. When mm-hmm. social media and everything is so
1: much trying to tell
13: me what to believe. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the type of person to be told what to believe.
1: Mm-hmm. I
13: have figured that out on my own, I'm Serafina, I'm not mm-hmm. anybody else.
1: Mm-hmm.
13: But so that's that's what I'm trying to say. Because the I, the point of ideological clarity is not a dogmatic thing. Yes. It's not being political is not a confining thing. It's the same thing that Baldwin says when he talks about love. You're responsible, mm-hmm. um, in essence.
1: Yeah.
13: That's that's the only thing because that's like the that's the that's the issue with right now. Um, not solely that we don't know or that we don't know enough or that we aren't trying to know or try to um, fight for what is right as a generation but is that like what like we've already said before what are the tools how can we use what we see how can we use what we know in a Actual and concrete and helpful way, Sorry. instead of something that works against us.
9: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, Let me call
9: yeah. I just what Serafina and Emily were talking about about Black people really, in some ways, still representing the vanguard of the ideological struggle, and the reason why that 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 is the reason why they need to be neutralized and divided. Uh, in our moment. It also made me think about cultural nationalism Mm. and it's very I think it's getting clearer. I I struggle with that concept because it's not so easy to understand you know but I think it has contributed significantly to the neutralization of black organization and black people uh, being the vanguard because I think in some ways what it says and what it says is that okay so what have you achieved like what what has the civil rights movement what what is the gain we really need to go back to a time that's far behind mm-hmm. the civil rights movement and we need to go back to a continent that's not this one and that's that's where the salvation lies um, i don't know if this formulation is right but yeah, um right, yeah, but so. yeah i mean I, I never really managed to understand before this point what that movement represented, because it seemed like, okay, so yeah, you know, these people were brought, a a, a whole race of people were brought here from Africa. So there's this connection to Africa and Du Bois talks about it in mm-hmm. Tusk of Dawn, you know, his connection to Africa, even though, you know, he's so many generations removed from the African mm-hmm. people. But the way he puts it is that we are all connect, every people, who has been oppressed is connected to Africa because the connection is the common history of colonialism and slavery. But yeah, I'm just like I don't. I, at this point, I was trying to make the connection of cultural nationalism to the neutralization of the black black There's leadership. No, there, is no in our moment. there is no question.
2: There is no question about it. Uh, uh, let me let um, uh, Nathan and then uh, Lever-
0: yeah, uh, just. Reflecting about going to the uh, peace icons at Swarthmore with um, and everybody, uh, it made me think about right now how the moment is that um, like the ruling class is trying to uh, stunt the capacity of people to love, I guess, mm-hmm. and how that was um with mm-hmm. King, and actually the peace movement between the Soviet people
1: and America, the important part was for the people to know each other, Mm -hmm. you know? And that being what needs to happen in America right now is that the
5: people need to know each other unmediated by what, you know, the ruling class
0: is pushing between the backwards white people and the
2: hateful and, you know, bitter black people and everything. Absolutely. Um, That's right. Oh, but I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: yeah, (laughs) because... Yeah, but um, that's like... (laughs) I kind of forgot what I was going to say, but that's kind of what it makes me think because um, with this capacity to love, I mean, uh, and that responsibility that, you know, black people have reached in this country with the music and with the the civil rights movement, all of that had to be thrown away. Um, So, and and also on the world stage right now, I mean, you see all of the, uh, you know, Asia coming together and people want to know each other, but not with, um, not with imperialism anymore, not, not, not with white supremacy, or anything like that.
1: Go ahead, Nora. Um,
3: yeah, because I think part of what this reminds me of was in reading with this past meeting, I think Jeremiah was saying like, what does the doctrine of white supremacy actually like mean in practice? And in Reconstruction, like in this period, I think we're like right after the Civil War. And it's crazy because there was literally like a social revolution that took place. Like Black people like demonstrated like how large their capacity truly was. Like fighting for the Union, fighting like actively like seeking out their own freedom and even organizing directly after the Civil War. And the looking backwards chapter is kind of confusing because at the same time, there's a backlash in the South mm-hmm. with like the black codes being established and like the disorganization of the poor whites. And it's kind of, yeah, like what Nathan was saying where people should be able to see one another but for whatever reason in that moment, they couldn't actually like recognize that. And it's, yeah, like it's a very, I guess, yeah, like it is an ideological thing, which is what Serafino was saying. And They are also talking about how there's a theory that if Lincoln had lived, maybe Reconstruction would have been more successful. And so Du Bois says, like, yeah, maybe Lincoln would have more carefully followed public opinion. But Lincoln himself couldn't have settled the question of emancipation, Negro citizenship, and the vote without tremendous difficulty. And he says that that's because in the South there was absence of any leadership corresponding in bread and courage to that of Abraham Lincoln.
2: That one more time in the
3: South, there is absence of any leadership corresponding in breadth and courage to that of Lincoln. Yeah. Here comes the penalty which a land pays when it stifles free speech and free discussion and turns itself over entirely to propaganda. It does not make any difference if at the time the things advocated are right. The nation nevertheless becomes morally emasculated and mentally hogtied mm-hmm. and cannot be mentally involve, hogtied and cannot evolve that healthy difference of opinion which leads to the discovery of truth under changing conditions Mm -hmm. suppose for instance there had been in the south in 1863 a small but determined and clear-thinking group of men who said the negro is free and to make his freedom real he must have land and education he must be guided in his work and development but guided toward freedom and the right to vote such complete freedom and the bestowal of suffrage must be a matter of years but at present, we do not propose to take advantage of this and retain political power. And then if there had been in the white South at this time, far seeing leadership or even some common sense, the history of Reconstruction of the Negro in the United States would have been profoundly changed. And then he says, um, there is in the South in 1865, men who saw this truth plainly and said so, but true effective leadership was denied them. Just as before the war, public opinion in the South was hammered into idolatrous worship of slavery. So after the war, even more bitterly and cruelly, public opinion demanded a new, unyielding conformity. Here was a land of poignant beauty, streaked with hate and blood and shame, where God was worshiped wildly, where human beings were bought and sold, and where even in the 20th century, men are burned alive. The situation here in 1865 was fatal, and fatal because of the attitude of men's minds, rather than because of material loss and disorganization the human mind its will and emotions congealed to one set pattern until here were people who knew they knew one thing above all others just as certainly as they knew that the sun rose and set and that was that a negro would not work without compulsion and that slavery was his natural condition Hmm. and so yeah it's really interesting i think how du bois is describing the relationship of like leaders and what they can bring out of the people but also the overall atmosphere of basically like intellectual openness and being able to actually talk and like see and convene and actually like discourse discourse with other people and I'm not saying this to say that like the Lincoln assassination in the time then is the same as Kennedy's assassination in the deep state. Like I actually think it's very different um, because I think part of it is that both of these assassinations to some extent happened in revolutionary times but I think the difference is that in the period of the Civil War and Reconstruction, the dominant ideology was white supremacy and like the color line. And this was breaking, but to some extent, it was still solid enough where the whites like couldn't see the reality and what the Negro worker, like the black worker actually meant. Like despite everything that came out of the Civil War, there are still people who couldn't actually like comprehend it. And I feel like that was because like, you can see how devastating and how like real the color line was at that
1: point
3: mm-hmm. but i feel like the thing is is that in 1960s in the 1960s like that color line is also being broken down again with the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and also with like the world events of like the Dung conference like the rise of the soviet union all these national liberation
1: movements mm-hmm.
3: and so i feel like the ruling class with its assassinations like that's the strategy um to i think try to stifle like the leaders and then also the thought and like the ideological like capacity i think Um, yeah, and so I think it's also interesting that these ideas of like white supremacy being an eternal thing or like this idea that history or American history is all one essential same thing, it's very curious, but it also makes sense that it's coming back in this time.
1: Absolutely. um,
3: When actually like, yeah, the color line or like white supremacy, I think is even less of like a real thing, but it has to be like re- I don't know like reconfigure it in people's minds to make them think that it's real mm. so that people won't want to talk to one another so that people won't want
2: to meet and try to figure things out oh go ahead danny and then uh, let danny go and then
10: sorry i wanted to uh read something from donald kennedy really quickly this okay. is from the hotel Teresa during his campaign so this is a little bit of that he's trying to counter communism in a way but it's a Well, Mm -hmm. I think it's something that can be sympathized with.
2: Just say, the Teresa Hotel. Teresa Hotel,
10: 1960, October 12th. In Harlem, New York. In Harlem, New York, right after Castro and Khrushchev visited. So So he goes, I am delighted to come and visit. Behind the fact of Castro coming to this hotel, Khrushchev coming to Castro, there is another great traveler in the world, and that is the travel of a world revolution, a world in turmoil. I am delighted to come to Harlem, and I think the whole world should come here and the whole world should recognize that we all live right next to each other, whether here in Harlem or on the other side of the globe. We should be glad they came to the United States. We should not fear the 20th century for this worldwide revolution, which we see all around us, is in part of the original American Revolution. So there is a way in which he's trying to kind of-
1: That's crazy.
10: But hold on, let me, I'll defend it. I'll defend it. Obviously, yes, he's not a communist, okay. But he is trying to say there's a continuity, right? In other words, any kind of revolution in America would make a continuity between communism and the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's trying to claim it by saying like, yeah, it's about, you know, it's our side of the Cold War. Yeah. But it is something I would much prefer a billion times over yeah. they're fascist or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Okay, so that was the first thing I wanted to say. Okay. <laughs> the, the second thing I wanted to say, because uh, we're talking about revolutions and, so when the, the Nazis came to power, they sent observers to the south to observe the KKK, mm-hmm. right? Meaning they were trying to kind of emulate that. And the reason I bring that up, um, uh, apropos the bringing of Black Reconstruction right now, is the reason why the ruling class has to call any organization fascism is because, in a sense, it reminds them of. Communism. It reminds them of like, you know, they have to kind of denounce it Absolutely. and sort of pejorative because in a yeah. sense that to the degree that there is a revolution and there is a, a change, as Nuri was just talking about, and it was a period in the South where they had been defeated. They were the losers. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be on the side of a losing mm-hmm. army. They didn't have any wealth. It posed the necessity of revolutionary leadership where they would be picked up by the KKK, or likewise in the German um, example by the Nazis. Right? In other words, Germany was the uh, defeated World War I imperialist power. They tried a billion communist you know, revolutions, 1919, 1920, 1921, <laughs> 1923, you know, again through the 20s, again through the 30s. Mm-hmm. And so I bring that up because it points back to the necessity of revolutionary organization. And that's why that's the first thing that has to be gone after and then split. And then the last thing I wanted to say was I got a book in the mail just to talk about the authoritarian state thing which is to the degree that the authoritarian state is successful, it also brings itself out in the open in a way that actually could potentially undermine it. So I got a book in the mail and I bought it because of the title, even though it's total conservative right-wing stuff. But it's it's called American Resistance, How the Deep State saved america sure. oh yeah, yeah, yeah this is the foreign policy guy yeah this yeah, yeah. warbach guy and i'm just like nobody would ever write that book until now or something oh, and, wow. and it's all about thank god there were all the deep state people that stopped donald trump right and he's just exposing <laughs> all of this he's like this person was ready because they stopped this and the, the whole thing and i'm just like this is insane Right. So now they're going to create an ideology of like the deep state is good.
5: No. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's like great and yeah, I'm a
10: deep statist or something. So. <laughs> oh,
5: my that?
6: <laughs> <That's funny.
9: laughs>
6: oh, well, I just wanted to like hit on some of the points that you guys were talking about, like, you know, mm-hmm. just like people in position of power and able to change the narrative, uh, like, We live in the city of Philadelphia, born and raised here, and I've seen the transition that the city has gone through because before it was more about creativity, uh, originality, art, music, and I feel any people with like lack of resources or places to go to get the knowledge or just skilled trades and having like access to these things, if you don't have access to, you know, just skilled trade jobs or you don't have, like, a path to go to, I don't care what kind of people you are, um, you won't succeed. But if you do have, like, accessibility to these things and they're, like, easily accessible and you can sign up to be, like, whatever it is that you want to be, electrician, plumber, anything, you know, go to school a doctor um, and I just see in the city like you've kind of lost that it. it's just been kind of like commercialized in mm-hmm. sense. you see a big hole in the ground and you're like hey I wonder what these developers are going to do on this land and the first thing you think of is it's going to be apartments and they look the same and it's mm-hmm. like before in the city you would see you know people draw big murals of just impactful people in the city, you know, Uh, no matter who it was, it was just like, these people gave you inspiration. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Philly was just always known to have like its own personality. And now it's like
1: Mm
6: -hmm. um, getting commercialized. And it's just a lot of people, they Mm -hmm. see Philadelphia and they're like, it's not as expensive as New York City, <laughs> and it's not all the way down south where you're hitting the DC areas and that. Mm-hmm. But, like, just the state alone, Pennsylvania, you just see like certain sections develop these, uh, I would say, uh, cultures. Like, mm-hmm. and you know, I lived in like Pennsylvania area, mm-hmm. for example like if someone is uh, loitering or throwing out trash or garbage people are like encouraged to say hey report this person they're making the area you know not the standard that we want to keep it so like they encourage people to like clean up after themselves clean up after their dog when it's like a certain Standard that they had. Whereas you come in the inner city, no matter white, like,
1: mm-hmm.
6: you know, Asian, Latino, you throw something on the ground. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just as it is. Like, and I feel people would succeed a lot more in these inner cities because it's not just like people that's, you know, struggling. You go to Kensington, 90% of those drug addicts are white and they're mm-hmm. not even from the city, they're from. Mm-hmm new york Maryland, dc Mm -hmm. boston and you know without those resources i don't think people would be in position because all you can really ask for is like the opportunity um do i think color plays a long role in it of course Mm -hmm. like what she said as far as like in the corporate world in particular there are certain things that um, that different races will feel entitled to that others wouldn't and um i believe it's in all sectors and and jobs and the market and it's something that we need to actually talk about more because if we don't talk about it it would still be the elephant in the room people get uncomfortable like we just need to have people call this stuff out. Because if you don't call it out, like why would I give up my wealth and mm-hmm. position when I'm getting paid? I'm not worried about what you got going on and it's going to take me out of my position. Mm-hmm. And it's like we turn a blind eye because like, especially in this country, I just, I have noticed like we've gone away from it. The most qualified candidate, people that we know are well suited for the job, into somebody that we know. Let's give them the position because I'm cool with that. And I don't do business like that. If you're a professional, I'm I'm expecting you to be a professional.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: I don't want you to be in a position because you knew somebody. And I mm-hmm. think that's a problem that we we face because. Too many people are getting in positions
2: that are not qualified. Well, we call that the ruling class cannot rule and they can't, total incompetence, total uh, narcissism. Um, If we could, I wanna, if we could turn to the first chapter of Black Reconstruction because I think it relates directly to what you're saying, what we're getting at, this question of capacity of the people, by the way, the spiritual death of the city of Philadelphia mm-hmm. really has. But, um, I have a copy. I might have extra. I have extra. Many people Uh, How could I say, um, some people who comment upon Black Reconstruction uh, have recently drawn attention to the first chapter called The Black Worker, and they say that this makes Black Reconstruction a Marxist work, and it is in that tradition of Marxism. Just one or two quick things, I think you find this interesting, Chante. Mm -hmm. Um, The two greatest political economists in the classic period are Adam Smith and Karl Marx. And the question that confronted each of them is where does wealth come from? And each of them, Adam Smith, uh, maybe uh, 90 years before Marx's publication of Das Kapital was coming close to understanding that wealth comes from labor. This is the key um, insight, or not just insight, but the, the decisive, uh, well, i say insight, of the Marxist political economy, that it is labor that produces value, that unlike today with this uh, cryptocurrency, that money produces wealth. Money produces wealth, which is a total dislocation of the Marxist concept of the centrality of labor. What Du Bois does is starts with labor. And he is saying that enslaved labor is labor. Itself or is labor and is in fact central to the development of the labor process, of the wealth creating process in the United States. This cannot be underestimated. Because Black labor in this back in that period was enslaved, many advocates or many Marxists who had come to the United States did not recognize enslaved labor as labor. In other words, labor was free, free labor, I mean free and, and not uh, bound to a feudal lord, Uh, and not enslaved in other words it was the free worker who worked but yet was free to organize a union to organize strikes that was the future of the labor movement in the united Mm -hmm. states du bois says something fundamentally different and this is what i think inspires and um animates or informs how we think and what we do in the free school.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And this Du Boisian recognition, apropos what Sathina is saying, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. You can see, like you say, the possibilities. Now, that doesn't mean that things will turn out the way, you know, they... The possibility does not mean the actuality of things. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it is is the ground upon which we can fight. So I just wanted to make that point. This is Marxian in the sense of the centrality of labor to producing wealth. As you know, Du Bois studied in Germany in the early 1890s. and obviously he was studying far Mm -hmm. more than than we know. Uh, He had gone to meetings of the Social Democratic Party in Germany. He had probably become a socialist while in Germany, but uh, I think he read and would continue to read both Hegel and Marx and what we see crystallized in this work, Black Reconstruction, and certainly in the first chapter. Because then, I I agree with Emily about this, all the other chapters become clearer. Yeah. So unless somebody wants to say anything. Okay, what page are we on? Um, (laughs) Well,
14: informed me that, so everyone's (laughs) page might be a little different, but she pointed out that we left off on the passage in, the, for me, it's the third page of the Black Worker chapter, and it starts thus: the old difficulties and paradoxes appeared in new dress.
2: Well, well, what page is it?
14: That's on page five.
2: Five, page That's five. Six. Okay. Yeah, what,
14: yeah. Do you want to confirm?
2: And what? How does the paragraph begin?
14: Thus, the old difficulties mm-hmm. and paradoxes appeared in a new dress.
2: Everybody find that.
1: That sounds right. Right
2: hmm Okay. okay. Well, I
1: don't
5: have it yet. Okay. <laughs> I don't ready. okay. okay. All I'll right,
14: begin. Thus the old difficulties and paradoxes appeared in a new dress. It became easy to say and easier to prove that these black men were not men in the sense that white men were and could never be, in the same sense, free. Their slavery was a matter of both race and social condition, but the condition was limited and determined by race. Mm. They were congenital wards and children to be treated and well cared for, but far happier and safer here than in their own land. As the Richmond, Virginia Examiner put it in 1850, And I think this is a quote from this newspaper, um, quote, let us not bother our brains about what providence intends to do with our Negroes in the distant future, but glory and and profit to utmost by what he has done for them in transplanting them here and by setting them to work on our plantations. True philanthropy to the Negro begins like charity at home. And if Southern men would act as if the canopy of heaven were inscribed with a covenant in letters of fire that this part is underlined or italicized, the Negro is here and here forever is our property and is ours forever. They would accomplish more good for the race in five years than they boast the institution itself to have accomplished in two centuries." On the other hand, the growing exploitation of white labor in Europe, the rise of the factory system, the increased monopoly of land, and the problem of the distribution of political power began to send wave after wave of immigrants to America looking for new freedom, new opportunity, and new democracy. Okay, the
2: paradox then of Mm -hmm. slavery and still, quote, free labor. Mm All of this determined by race.
14: The opportunity for real and new democracy in America was broad. Political power was at first as usual confined to property holders and an aristocracy of birth and learning, but it was never securely based on land. Land was free and both land and property were possible to nearly every thrifty worker Schools began to multiply and open their doors, even to the poor laborer. Birth began to count for less and less, and America became to the world a land of economic opportunity. So the world came to America, even before the revolution, and afterwards, during the 19th century, 19 million immigrants entered the United States. When we compare these figures with the cotton crop, And the increase of black workers we see how the economic problem increased in intricacy this intricacy is shown by the persons in the drama and their differing and opposing interests there were the native born americans largely of english descent who were the property holders and employers and even so far as they were poor they looked forward to the time when they could accumulate capital and become as they put it, economically, quote, independent. Then there were the new immigrants, torn with a certain violence from their older social and economic surroundings, strangers in a new land with visions of rising in the social and economic world by means of labor. They differed in language and social status, varying from the half-starved Irish peasant to the educated and German artisan they were the free negroes oh there were the free negroes those of the north free in some cases for many generations and voters and in other cases fugitives new come from the south with little skill and small knowledge of life and labor in their new environment there were the free negroes of the south an unstable harried class living on sufferance of the law and the goodwill of white patrons yet rising to be workers and sometimes owners of property and even of slaves and cultured citizens. There was the great mass of poor whites disinherited of their economic portion by competition with the slave system and land monopoly.
2: Can I just say one thing? This this description of the um, economic and social status characteristics of different groups uh within the american population at this time is very valuable mm-hmm. um and it brings us closer to knowing uh the life world of the american people mm-hmm. vastly different from now mm-hmm. i just want...
14: in the earlier history of the south Oh, i just oh, wanted
2: the free negro as a mm-hmm. category
1: yes. mm-hmm.
2: um, the free Negro in the South, mainly in the cities, uh, and the free Negroes in the North, uh, because even during slavery institutions like uh, Bethel AME Church, the AME denomination, other institutions uh, of Black folk uh, began to emerge. Uh, So you get the free Negro, and then you get the enslaved majority. I just want to bring mm-hmm. that up. Mm-hmm. There's been a scholarship uh, writings on the free Negro, how they lived, what they thought. There were even slave holders among Black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, And one of the big centers of free Negroes was New Orleans, Louisiana.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
14: In the earlier history of the South, free Negroes had the right to vote. Indeed, so far as the letter of the law was concerned, there was not a single Southern colony in which a black man who owned the requisite amount of property and complied with the other conditions did not at some period have the legal right to vote. Negroes voted in Virginia as late as 1723 when the assembly enacted that no free Negro, mulatto, and Indian shall hereafter have any vote at the elections of Burgesses or any election whatsoever. In North Carolina, by the act of 1734, a former discrimination against Negro voters was laid aside and not reenacted until 1835. A complaint in South Carolina in 1701 said, several free Negroes were received and taken for as good electors and the best freeholders in the province, so that we leave it with your lordships to judge whether admitting aliens, strangers, servants, negroes, etc., as good and qualified voters can be thought any ways agreeable to King Charles' patent to your lordships or the English constitution of government. End quote. Again, in 1716, Jews and Negroes who had been voting were expressly excluded. In Georgia, there was at least, there was at first no color discrimination, although only owners of 50 acres of land could vote. In 1761, voting was expressly confined to white men. In the states carved out of the Southwest, they were disenfranchised as soon as the state came into the Union, although in Kentucky, they voted between 17 92 and 1799, and Tennessee allowed free Negroes to vote in her constitution of 1796. In North Carolina where even disenfranchisement in 1835 did not apply to Negroes who had already the right, they, who already had the right to vote. It was said that the several hundred Negroes who had been voting before, then unusually, voted prudently and judiciously. In Delaware and Maryland, they voted in the latter part of the 18th century. In Louisiana, Negroes who had had the right to vote during territorial status were not disenfranchised. Mm. To sum up, in colonial times, the free Negro was excluded from suffrage only in Georgia, South Carolina, and Virginia. The border states, um, in the border states, Delaware disenfranchised the Negro in 1792, Maryland in 1783 and 1810. In the Southeast, Florida disenfranchised Negroes in 1845, and in the Southwest, Louisiana uh, disenfranchised them in 1812, Mississippi in 1817, Alabama in 1819, Missouri 1821, Arkansas in 1836, Texas
1: 1845. <laughs> <laughs>
14: <laughs> <was a> true. <laughs> Georgia under constitution of 1777 confined voters to white males but this was omitted in the constitution of 18, uh, 1789 and 1798. As slavery grew into a system and the cotton kingdom began to expand into imperial white domination A free Negro was a contradiction, Mm. a threat, and a menace. As a thief and a vagabond, he threatened society, but as an educated property holder, a successful mechanic, or even professional man, he more than threatened slavery. He Mm -hmm. contradicted it and undermined it. He must not be. He must be suppressed, enslaved, colonized, Mm. and nothing so bad could be said about him that did not easily appear true as true to slaveholders. In the North, Negroes, for the most part, received political enfranchisement with the white laboring classes. In 1778, the Congress of the Confederation twice refused to insert the word white in the Articles of Confederation in asserting that free inhabitants in each state should be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of free citizens in several states. In the law of 1783, free Negroes were recognized as the basis of taxation. And in 1784, they were recognized as voters in the territories. In the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, quote, free male inhabitants of full age, quote, were recognized as voters. The few Negroes that were in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont could vote if they had property qualifications. In Connecticut, they were disfranchised in 1814. In 1865, this restriction was retained and Negroes did not regain the right until after the Civil War. In New Jersey, they were disfranchised in 1807, but regained the right in 1820 and lost it in 1847. Negroes voted in New York in the 18th century, then were disfranchised, but in 1821, were permitted to vote, with a discriminatory property qualification of $250. No property qualification was required of whites. Attempts were made at various times to remove this qualification, but it was not removed until 1870. In Rhode Island, they were disfranchised in the constitution which followed Doors' Rebellion, but finally allowed to vote in 1842. In Pennsylvania, they were allowed to vote until 1833 when the quote, reform convention restricted the suffrage to whites. The Western states as territories did not usually restrict the suffrage, but as they were admitted to the union, they disfranchised the Negroes, Ohio in 1803, Indiana in 1816, Illinois in 1818, Michigan in 1837, Iowa in 1846, Wisconsin in 1848, Minnesota in 1858, and Kansas in 1861. The Northwest Ordinance and even the Louisiana Purchase had made no color discrimination in the legal and political rights. But the states admitted from this territory, specifically and from the first, denied, <coughs> denied free black men the right to vote and pass codes of black laws in Ohio, Indiana, and elsewhere instigated largely by the attitude and fears of the immigrant poor whites from the South. Thus in Kansas and the West, the problem of the black worker was narrow and specific. Neither the North nor the West asked that black labor in the United States be free and enfranchised. On the contrary, they accepted slave labor as a fact, but they were determined that it should be territorially restricted and should not compete with the free white labor.
2: Does everybody get that point? You know, does there, um, Emily, mm-hmm. this is this is very important. What,
10: what, what, is this is a retort to the counter revolution of seventeen seventy six. Meaning, <laughs> he's exactly saying, just going through all the state laws that no, these were not there. They developed in the nineteenth century. 16th They're 16th developing 16th. because of the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just—it's the first chapter. It's
2: this. <laughs> he says
10: King Cotton. He talks about, yeah. you know, industrial reserve coming, yeah, right? Yeah, the immigrants yeah, that are coming, yeah. like all of these things, are just exactly saying that no, there was the expectation that slavery was going to die out. This is the mm-hmm. Northwest Ordinance, right? Mm-hmm. This is explicitly there, and then it actually gets a second wind. It revives. Yes. The race codes Completely. actually become more like, uh, I'm trying to, I want to say the word rational, but I don't mean rational isn't good. I mean, rationalized, Mm -hmm. meaning they're becoming more enforced in a certain way. And that's why that second paragraph of chapter one, he says what in 1860, if you looked at the lineages of African-Americans in the United States, a lot of times they had mixed backgrounds. There was white, there was Native American, Mm -hmm. there was all Mm -hmm. sorts of things like that. And yet the race codes are, in a sense, forcing somebody into a box in a way, right? In other words, like he talks about white passing, is that in the second Mm -hmm. uh, paragraph? Mm -hmm. And they're being forced to be like, no, black or white, black or white, white. like it's kind of cutting down. And I bring that up because that's a logic of the industrial revolution is forcing itself in that way. And one more thing, I know you're about to say something. (laughs) No, no, keep going. The paragraph we started with, the first sentence said, old paradoxes in a new form. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So
10: the old paradoxes would have been the unemployed and the working class, right, the industrial reserve. And they're not recognizing how that's playing out. So I don't know if I would call them Marxists. I would say people that were in the communist league with Marx, people in Krieg, people he denounced in in the 1840s. Oh, Uh, he denounced them. Oh, he polemicized the S-H-I-T out of them. You know, like, just
2: these people are goofy, like, of course
10: um and they by the way, to they're
2: mentioned in chapter two by Du Bois. yeah
10: create yeah. beatlin all the yeah. communists in the Karl Marx movie there's a whole scene where Marx and Engels get up and like you know destroy them in front of the workers in order to like you know they flee because he's like no these are misleaders but i bring that up because i'm saying that when he says the old paradox is a new form mm-hmm. it means the red 48ers are actually missing how it's a new form of an old content and that's what they're kind of reacting to, right? In other words, they're misrecognizing the lessons of 1848 in America again, that actually you have to organize the unorganized, which in this case would be the slaves that are emancipating themselves. Like in other words, that's what I think he's saying.
2: No, I think he is. I think it's, oh, go anybody else? I, here, and you're right. You're absolutely right. And the way Du Bois narrates it, is that it is a question of labor yeah.
10: mm-hmm.
2: and the exploitation of labor was not just a question of, and this word slavery kind of distorts our understanding of everything right. yeah. because then the quote slave is not a worker,
1: right. mm-hmm.
2: you know but if the slave is a worker, then his relation and her relationship to others of the laboring classes the difference, and I think he makes this point. And he's he's gesturing towards this point. He goes, goes further later on. Is that the black worker had no hope of escaping his and her position as a worker? Others could be sold the idea, in many cases of fiction, of escaping the labor process, the process of the exploitation of labor. By going west, getting mm. land, mm. and so on. But go ahead, Jerry, and then uh, oh, the, oh, go ahead, Al.
4: Well, just just quickly, um, I found this like pamphlet that Du Bois wrote about the Negro and the French Revolution mm. in like the 1860s or, or 1960s mm. or 1950s. But he also talks about the American Revolution as well, and he. Well, also, it was interesting to find that actually Du Bois had ancestors in the American Revolution, like white mm, ancestors yeah, who fought in the American
7: Revolution. Yeah. But
4: also that, um, I think they were white, but that
2: he... No, said, they were black, the Burkhardts, Burkhardts, Yeah. Mm, the, yeah. Uh, the Dutch side of him, the okay. African-Dutch. The so
10: didn't
2: he also... Huguenots, yes. Which is another revolution. Which is another revolution. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
4: yeah. yeah. he makes the... um he makes point As everybody
2: history. knows, the W. William Edward, the Burkhardt Burkhard, uh, is his maternal side. Oh. The Du Bois is his paternal side. Yeah. So he always talks about he had both Dutch and French blood, mm-hmm. but it was the blood of Africa that flooded his veins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he makes a point
4: that with the American Revolution, everyone assumed that slavery would end with the american revolution yeah. and mm-hmm. actually yeah like these just like these paragraphs where he was like actually yeah like things were uh, like relatively better and then they imposed like mm-hmm. these slave codes like the they enforced, right. they enforced mm-hmm. as, as danny was saying mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. i i had i literally did not know that that was the case like until reading this that like actually it's not like things were obviously not like things were perfect or great but mm that like the American revolution had kind of pushed America and many people consciously knew this, that pushed America in the direction of like, oh, like like slavery doesn't make sense yeah. in the yeah. system. And like it should die out. And I, I think that just like the founding fathers didn't really no work out like, yes. oh, like that we should actually like enforce it. Yes. So it's been like, oh, naturally it'll die out because yes. it's like, inco- like, it doesn't work within the framework that we're trying to, mm-hmm. that we're trying to develop.
2: Um, Can I just say... See, the question of bourgeois normality. Mm. I mean, these these people, as you say, the mm. founding fathers, had a concept of the bourgeois democratic revolution. Mm. And they did. I mean, they were not, well, died in the world white supremacists mm. in the sense of, but they, I mean, maybe they were, but the concept of a normal bourgeois society is... Why even Mao and the and the Chinese Revolution references the American Revolution? I, I don't know what you got. I think sometimes, you know, 20th century revolutionaries reference the American yeah. Revolution mm-hmm. more than the French mm-hmm. Revolution. Yeah, like what you meant. Ten, um, oh, point, 10 point program? Yeah, yeah yeah yeah, the, yeah, 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 the American Revolution. But anyway. Yeah,
4: no, it was just I'd like. Before reading Black Reconstruction, I didn't know that they had to like like later on impose these like much more oppressive mm-hmm. and restrictive like the slave codes, like the disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. And actually like
2: because of the labor like, question. Yeah. The yeah, conflict yeah. of oh, ah. the conflict labor. And this is in Marxist in the Communist Manifesto. The proclamations of bourgeois of the bourgeois revolutionaries and the objective necessity of the exploitation of labor makes mm. bourgeois democracy mm. almost impossible, because the ex- the imperative is profit, and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let 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 Alice go, and then and then. Uh, It It was
11: also through the first, or I mean, through Black Reconstruction, but specifically the first couple of chapters, that a bunch of us discussed how this very much is an American development of history. Because in this first chapter, Du Bois, and also in the second chapter with the white worker, Mm -hmm. he references often how this opportunity for land, this American dream essentially, was not possible in Europe. And that's why there was this wave of immigrants to the US. And that's where it becomes complicated, too, for the American situation of labor because of uh, the presence of slavery itself. Because no matter what was done in the U.S. with, like, Northern unions or this, like, movement to the West, it would consistently be undermined by slavery. Mm -hmm. And that's why, like, even the, it was, that's why I know in, like, I think a later chapter they even reference, like, Marxism in the U.S. or like those who follow that tradition, but it doesn't, it doesn't pick up wind in the same way it does in Europe as in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is Mm -hmm. something that I didn't understand in the past before too, which is like the appeal of the West to Mm -hmm. many of these immigrants and how significant Mm -hmm. it was where essentially the North and the South are figuring out what that, what the West would Mm -hmm. look like and specifically in terms of the role of the white worker even or the white worker in the north even there's this perception that the north is um is abolitionist or that there's a general Mm -hmm. sentiment that the north is against slavery but what Du Bois says in this chapter is actually they didn't think about it at all really Mm -hmm. um or they did think about it only in the way of let's not have slavery in the west so that white labor is protected right um and i think Following this chapter, you see how that is impossible or in that the North and the South do have to work out this question of slavery and the role of 4 million black people in the country um, because they tried to essentially address the question of labor without thinking about slavery or the question of the 4 million um, black people in America.
1: Mm
13: All I,
9: all okay, I, sorry.
13: sorry. No, all I want to add is I just googled the definition of property and I googled the definition of slave. Okay, for property, it says that things, thing or things belonging to somebody. But then in another uh, definition, which I thought was interesting, it said an attribute, quality or characteristic of something, and the example. Whew, kind of nervous the example um that they uh put was the property of heat to expand metal at uniform rates i thought that was interesting and then slavery it says it was it was is interesting because it wasn't that specific the state of being a slave <laughs> wow! That, that was the first one. That
1: sounds like definition. <laughs>
13: yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, that was the first definition, but they gave a couple more. They was even more. They said, "Um, the practice or system of owning slaves." Um, but then, I know right. Um, and then it said a condition compared to that of a slave, and this is what I thought was interesting, in respect of exhausting labor or restricted freedom. Hmm. Um. And like the, the, the definition of property as being a characteristic of quality um, was interesting to me because that has more to do with um, how, in this case, a worker would relate to its owner or like how, um, what is the relationship or, you know, conditions and like, what is the worldview of both and how they interact with each other. Um, mm-hmm. But with slavery being involved with this question of freedom, I thought was interesting in the definitions of and also how we talk about democracy where we we'll go um and and you know as the boys will get into further in this chapter the cultural norms the philosophy the you know philanthropy around uh, the the fact that the entire economy the entire world-based system is uh dependent and because of Enslaving Africans, mm-hmm. or you know, you know. Put but
2: you know, isn't it interesting? This first chapter is not titled "The Black Slave." Mm-hmm. No. It's entitled "The Black Worker." Right,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: um, you know, I think this is so intentional, so um, so much rooted in the Du Boisian philosophy of history. Because you know he begins a work that is all about revolution and counter-revolution with the black worker. Mm-hmm. I mean, just this architecture is so fascinating from an epistemological. By epistemological, I mean a theory of knowledge, a way of knowing the world, and I mean it's it's almost. Um, and, and you, you're right. I mean, uh, like everybody else, I've read these chapters over and over again, and you know there it's there's such, uh, if I might say, such subtlety and nuance with the way he's thinking, and he thinks in layers. Um, there's not one meaning; there're multiple meanings. And so we're looking at a very complex reality that has to be uncovered. Mm -hmm. And so a book about revolution in the United States begins not with the slave, but the worker. So a book, in the Du Boisian sense about revolution in the United States is a book about class and class struggle, Mm -hmm. which means that it is a book about the revolutionary overturning of capitalism and the process of that in the United States. It is, I mean, just nothing short of breathtaking. Mm -hmm. But the other side of it is how it is missed and distorted is nothing short of breathtaking. <laughs> you know, how is it missed so easily? You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Or how do you come to shutting the door on any possibility of revolution with uh, you know the horn thesis? Everything is a counter revolution. Counter revolution of 1776. So he said, Damn, at least okay, we got that out of the way. Then he comes with another one the counter revolution of 1835 in Texas. You know? So, counter revolution is everywhere, revolution is not a possibility. Mm-hmm. But this is he's anti Du Boisian. Mm-hmm. If not, we, we can. I, no, could you, uh, oh, no I, I
9: just found that. The distinction you made about like you know using the term slavery without fully understanding what because you know we also say that the, the, the you know the countries that were colonized were enslaved but it's a different kind of enslavement that was what, what I'm, I'm how I'm interpreting what you're saying is that that is enslavement in the sense that they didn't have autonomy as a mm-hmm. people and they mm-hmm. didn't have the right to self-determination but this Slavery is related to labor. Yes. And it's related to the work. And that was very like, And I, I never thought of that. This before.
2: is huge. Mm-hmm. And this is why, at a certain point, the whole concept slavery obscures the social essence mm-hmm. of the slave. There's there's slavery throughout history. Yeah. There was slavery in Africa, slavery in China, slavery in Greece. I mean, slavery was an accepted form of labor, of service, other things. But here we have something new, Mm -hmm. and this is a new qualitative stage in the development of capitalist labor. And so the labor process in the United States is not the same as in England in the 1850s. The Industrial Revolution took a different form in the United States. The Industrial Revolution was the cotton gin and the rise of what we call, quote, the cotton kingdom. But really, the cotton kingdom was, well, you know, a, um, a system, an economic system that produced wealth for the global economy. Um, just just one other thing, I just wanted to say this. Um, so the question is, were the black workers a proletariat or were they an agricultural workforce? Mm-hmm. So then it gets to our definition of proletariat. Well, it's a a Latin word, usually meant unfree or having to work for somebody else. But the question becomes, what was the relationship between the enslaved proletariat and the British working class? I think that relationship was more organic than the relationship between black and white labor in the United States. That is because cotton fueled the garment industry, the weaving industry in London, uh, producing things that displace the textile industry in India.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. So. This proletariat, the implications of this are very deep and profound for our time and understanding this process. And, you know, by the way, Nori and I are, Nuri is far more advanced in this, reading Eric Foner again. <laughs> 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 and... It is the first book is published in 1988. It's remained in publication since that time. I mean, this is no small matter that a book is constantly published and republished, and it is, without doubt, an attempt to theoretically and ideologically topple the Du Boisian thesis without mentioning Du Bois. That's the bad faith of it. Go ahead. uh,
4: Can I I ask, um, like, what is the difference between like a proletariat and like I don't know a peasantry, agricultural? (laughs) Because also there's a comment on Facebook about Mm -hmm. this. Like, I think someone named uh, Philip Logan is saying the. He's saying that the slaves were. that they began in the Americas as an enslaved peasantry. Mm. And I think- This I, is interesting. Cause, cause it's, like, it's like both like, my question is like both about like, yeah, it, like act, like proletariat peasantry, but also it's not like, I feel like your voice is not, or you're not saying that the slaves the slaves in this context, or that the black worker in this context was not, it wasn't a feudal relation. It was another kind of relation. Absolutely. And that Absolutely. this is an important distinction but also, I'm I'm not I'm not totally clear on like what is the difference between like a proletariat category versus the other
10: available
4: <laughs> but ones. But I wanted to say
10: something back what you said earlier. So there, yes, there has been there had been slavery in all of human history. But when slaves would say, uh, you know, kill their slave masters, there would then settle communities where they had their own slaves. Meaning <laughs> you didn't actually go beyond slavery. Whereas this is a case where when black people were emancipating themselves, they were not then establishing slavery. It was as you were pointing to higher state. So this is one thing that's already different. Yes. The other thing as well, because he, I guess he always puts free labor in quotes, which would be the Marx thing, mm-hmm. meaning it's not really free. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason I bring that up is there ought not to be any contradiction between you being a free laborer and new workers. Meaning if you read like Adam Smith and because you brought up America, England and India, Adam Smith is seeing the American Revolution linked to India as well in Wealth of Nations, because he's saying the underinvestment in India that's being done by British colonialism is linked up with the American Revolution. That's the whole book for right there. And obviously that's coming back in the 19th century with rebellions in India, American Civil War, and what's happening in England. The reason I bring By this up the
2: Tai Chi reb re- rebellion yeah. in China. Absolutely. It's it's thing. it's
10: everything. And I think this is Du Bois is gonna say this in the book as well about yes, yes. how US imperialism is lamped up but the a war. The reason I bring this up is that and I'm I'm just following Marx because the word proletariat's very old. Mm-hmm. They used to put mm-hmm. them in bread and circuses, but for Marx and Engels, it's something relatively new. Mm-hmm. And it's reflecting really the fact that people have the right to sell their labor but there is a, they would call it the overproduction of labor, meaning unemployment. And so the reason I'm bringing that up is because it ought not to have been the case that when workers came to America that they were then resistant to the emancipation of slaves. The fact that that's happening is reflecting a crisis in the world. And that's, what, that's why it's posing a political problem. And the term proletariat, citizens without property, mm-hmm. meaning they have the right to vote, but let's say you're unemployed, that's a modern problem that didn't exist in say ancient Rome and ancient Greece, and that's why the question of democracy is being posed coming out of the Civil War and into Reconstruction in a way that would have not been in like, I don't, you know, Rome collapses because of slavery and freemen, but it doesn't collapse in any kind of competition. It collapses because the freemen cannot do what the slaves do. And they go and join the German Teutonic tribes mm-hmm. that actually like support the invasion of Rome mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that sense, because that kind of social relation of labor did not exist at that time. And Seraphina read property earlier. So the idea of, the modern idea of like bodily autonomy comes out of that. You have labor in your body. This is the John Locke thing. And so consequently I have self ownership of my body. And so in the general strike, the, Former slaves, and I, I agree with you so much that you can't put it as, like, are they slaves or not slaves? Because it's a process, it's a revolution, profanity word revolution. It's a huge thing happening. <laughs> that it's a question of them literally claiming their human rights, qua human rights. And that's, you know, we talked about this. That's it's the revolution. The, <laughs> right after the Declaration of Independence was published, slaves petitioned. In northeast america citing and quoting it i think i posted it the other day i don't know if it was maine or massachusetts but they sent a petition saying the declaration of independence says i have rights as man mm-hmm. and man like that's a gender neutral, whatever thing <laughs> <laughs> we It meant women, it meant everybody in that sense.
5: Mm-hmm.
10: But they were claiming that, and that's why this is starting to drive the problem. This is why you get the gag rule. Mm-hmm. This is why you were not allowed to read the Declaration of Independence like in on the House floor, because if Southern people had their slaves and they would hear that, they would go, all men are created equal? <laughs> and they're like, you can't say that yeah. in in yeah. Congress, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's the whole point is that there's always been work, but labor is a modern relation. It's a bourgeois relation, it's a city relation, mm. and that's what's being claimed. And that's what's in crisis, and that's why slavery is coming back in this way mm. in the 19th century. Mm.
3: But,
2: but, 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 good, good. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm thinking. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think um, the usage of the word proletariat in socialist discourse. Comes from the French, the French Revolution, the French socialist. But you know, um, it's obvious that um, Du Bois is using this term, and, and throughout the text, he then he goes from worker to proletariat, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. as the category uh, that he speaks. <laughs> Well, oh, let me just make oh, sorry <laughs> a...
5: okay go ahead, go ahead. okay yeah.
2: but uh, um but he's using it in a way different from the ways that uh, european socialists even european marxists would because he is not talking about a economic development that looks like england sure the Industrial Revolution occurs, let us say, in 1776, you know, uh, steam power and other things that enhances the productivity of labor and hence the uh, production of wealth. Remembering, Marxian theory is, a, is based upon um, the labor theory of value, what we call some say the labor theory of exploitation. Without exploitation, Marx argues, there is no wealth created Mm -hmm. without the exploitation of labor. Du Bois says the economic development of the United States was not predicated upon manufacturing Mm -hmm. as much Mm -hmm. as upon plantation slavery uh, which makes it more similar to what happens in the colonies of Africa and Asia. Uh, so the United States, and I guess we have to work through this a little bit, really, to see this. This is where Horn f's up so badly, man. <laughs> what, what, what is the logic of America's economic development? Mm-hmm. Go, 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 ahead. I, <laughs> I, 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 I have to spoil
10: this <laughs> chapter because it has one of my favorite images, and this shows how it got into the very American consciousness, which is the image of John Henry,
1: mm-hmm. right? Meaning, yeah.
10: the, oh, John, John Henry. Henry. Oh, okay. Am I saying? So, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right against the machine. In other words, like what's happening in the industrial revolution is labor against capital labor against machines. Yeah. And that image in American folklore. It couldn't get any more like it's almost like the guiding image for me in this Mm -hmm. opening chapter. I mean, there's a lot of great things in this opening chapter, but like, what's the industrial revolution? It's like man versus machine,
1: mm-hmm.
10: yeah. right? And machine in a broader sense, not like contraption.
2: But can I just say yeah. yeah. But this, is, this is where Marx's genius just comes through. Where the chart people with chartists, you know, destroy the machine, you free labor. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah.
2: Marx's argument, and this is Du Bois's argument, it's not the black proletariat versus the cotton gin. Right. It's the black proletariat versus the slave owning system, right? Which
1: mm-hmm.
2: the other thing is, and I think this is the brilliance of what uh, Du Bois is doing here. You know, because and and is no because it's almost embedded in our thinking in this country that slavery was not a form of capitalist production. Mm-hmm. If you see slavery as a form, that's why I say that. Du Bois had absorbed the foundational thinking of Marx, but reapplied it, repurposed it Mm -hmm. in the context of the American economic and revolutionary processes. To free labor is to free the slave. It's just such, and that problem, Mm -hmm. that paradox. Mm again, it's breathtaking, had to be resolved. Just like for us today, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: the paradox of the future, the paradox of this moment that has to be resolved in a lot of ways is a moment in the same logic
1: Mm -hmm.
2: to free labor is to free black folk. Mm -hmm. Not yeah, That's all I wanted to say. It's but also, I just one quick, right quick point. I just one yeah, quick just point. my last point. point. Yeah, but this is my last point, too. <laughs> but Du Bois' brilliance to see the freeing of labor as the, the mode of the class conflict in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that is where most leftists, especially my MAGA communist friends, if you want to call them that, they cannot see labor in this sense. The sadness is the complete obscuring of Black Reconstruction and the way that he, uh, P. Du Bois, designs this epistemology Mm -hmm. This way of knowing the world. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is, you know, I call it some words, an epistemic break, an epistemic rupture, mm-hmm. an epistemological rupture with, I would say, all previous ways of mm-hmm. articulating the class conflict in the United States having been a member of the communist party where people came out of the labor movement labor organizing in the 30s and all of that knowing the people i would say uh for the most part 90 percent of people in the communist party did not understand the class struggle in the united states but danny i cut you off and and then i I
10: wanted to uh, affirm what he said earlier about why I think proletariat is appropriate because what spit out for Marx and Engels about the proletariat is not that they were wage workers or that they worked in factories that's always existed mm-hmm. but a very young Engels probably when he's like 19 he says what's happening in England is the subaltern classes taking up the democratic revolution meaning they're the vanguard of the revolution so why would it be appropriate to say black proletariat and not just black workers? There already was a book called Black Worker, Abraham Harris, yeah, right, yeah, his dissertation. Yeah, yeah. But he's saying black proletariat because he's saying the vanguard of the democratic revolution.
2: Yeah. And so
10: that's why I think it is appropriate. I
2: don't think there's no question about it. you, you're very right about. It. And so if I could just say one last okay. thing. The, the magnitude of this work from a social science point of view, where he already sees the objective and subjective. The objective meaning exploited to produce wealth Mm -hmm. for a class that keeps you in your status of worker or slave. But the subjective Mm -hmm. is the capacity of those workers to, as Danny said, Mm -hmm. crystallize as a proletariat in the modern Mm construal. In other words, it is almost a given that when the word proletariat is used, it is used to reference a liberating yes. part of the working class. Yes. Oh, but go go ahead, uh, Jerry. No,
4: no, no, that, that just makes me sense because I think, like, to go back to my question, like, as I'm hearing you guys talk about it, I guess the way that I'm understanding i'm understanding it is that like yes they were slaves yes you could say maybe there's even like Mm -hmm. like some way thinking about like maybe like a peasant Mm -hmm. thing but like why those categories are not the most useful is because yeah you have to think about it as like the as as workers as a proletariat both because their labor was generative of like the industrial like revolution in the United States and of capitalism in the United States, mm-hmm. and that using these terms of like slavery or like a, like a um, like a peasantry doesn't signify those things, mm-hmm. but that also like it is yeah like what you guys are saying in terms of I get the specific use of the word proletariat reflects a certain. Development of consciousness,
5: of of a revolutionary
4: consciousness, and that that is not reflected in either the terms of of a slave or just like a peasant, like a peasant worker or something. Um,
2: Can I just say one, one quick thing? Now, Du Bois says in the chapter, The Coming of the Lord, I think even in this chapter, that freedom meant for the slave the breakup of the plantation and they're getting land.
1: Yes, yeah. yes.
2: Yeah. Now, yeah, I did say that. <laughs> yes, but <laughs> the question is Is that his only option in the democratic revolutionary process that the slaves get, quote, rep what we would call reparations in terms of land? Or was there in Black Reconstruction? A, a, a projection of labor, in this case what he calls the dictatorship of the black proletariat in several states, then organizing, reorganizing the system of economic relationships in the South. Um, I'm not quite certain. We'll have to see. But he continues to talk about this breaking up of the plantation and getting land but everybody couldn't get land and everybody didn't want land and there would be then and this is where certain leftists i can see critiquing this work mm-hmm. saying well all you're establishing is a black capitalist class to exploit black labor uh, so we I, we have to solve that problem, but uh, go ahead, Jerry, and then Emil, and then uh, Nuri.
4: Well, I just, uh, the, the last thing I want to say is that it reminded me of the Noel Ignatieff um, essay comparing Foner's work and Black Reconstruction mm-hmm. where, I don't know if this is the same thing that we're saying, but Ignatiev says, Du Bois described the, slave, the slaveholders not merely as a wealthy elite, but mm-hmm. as owners of capital. Mm-hmm. The world market, quote, set prices for selling cotton, tobacco, and sugar, which left a narrow margin of profit for the planter, end quote. If the slaveholders were capitalists, it follows that the laborers were proletarians. He expressed this notion throughout the book, beginning with the, chap- with the title of the first chapter, which he, called the black, which he called not the black slave, but the black worker. <laughs> well. um, Foner identifies capitalism, however, with the wage form. His references to the slaveholders as, quote, a reactionary and aristocratic ruling class, and as, quote, Bourbon, Bourbons, Bourbon. 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 Bourbons yeah. uh, imply a model based on the French Ancien regime. He carefully avoids using the terms, quote, worker or proletarian to describe the slaves. To him, they were just slaves. Because Du Bois identifies the slaves with pro, as proletarians, he applied the categories of the labor, labor movement to them. And so then it talks about the general strike, which I, I think is like what you all are saying, but I don't know that that mm-hmm. paragraph didn't make sense in mm-hmm. this
7: whole discussion. Go ahead, um, I was actually going to ask a question about um, the labor theory of value, mm-hmm. you were saying. My understanding is that it comes from, um, from Adam Smith, and that Marx took that and used it yes, in a way yes. that's inconvenient for the econo- economists at the time, because you know, Adam Smith took it to the point of saying that's where value comes from, but Marx took it and said, okay, well, that, that's where all value comes from. Then what's this thing's profit, surplus yeah. value that you're getting? You know, if the worker is putting all of it in. Shouldn't he get all of it out when you account for all the upkeep and things of that mm-hmm, nature? Mm-hmm. And so this is very inconvenient for economists at the time, and then they had to develop this new economic theory. I mean, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not an economist, but this is my vague understanding of no, it. No, no, no. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, and the brilliance of – oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the brilliance of Adam Smith, mm-hmm. who is often overlooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, Adam Smith and Karl Marx are are part of a single scientific development right. and understanding a right. capitalist right. economy. But he, here's the point I just want to make the Chartists, which Martin Luther King talked about, in his speech. Like- <laughs> <laughs> the Chartists, the people who believe. That the machine was the problem, Mm -hmm. not the class that owned the machine. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Now there's certain things that Marx does because of his use of dialectical reasoning Mm -hmm. that I don't think Smith could do. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them is the separation of value into exchange and use. Mm -hmm. And what the commodity. What Marx says, again, a brilliant uh, uh development is that under capitalism, things are not produced because they're useful, mm-hmm. they're produced because they can be sold at a profit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't produce food because people need to eat. We mm-hmm. produce it because can be mm-hmm. sold at a profit
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that, that is really. that is the inherent nature of capitalism yeah. and if that is the case then labor or labor power itself is a commodity mm-hmm. you know uh and of course the slave auction the buying and selling of labor power free, the the fiction of free labor but The fiction, the essence of what it is is completely exposed with the slave, the proletariat that is enslaved because they are bought and sold, not just their labor power. They are bought and sold, which then indicates that labor in any form, like mark labor in the black skin and labor in the white skin, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's all labor because it is bought mm-hmm. because it can make and produce wealth or better yet, a profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the whole thing. That's why a lot of time, and, and I'll shut up now, often when Marx's uh, labor theory of value is discussed, it's often referred to as the labor theory of exploitation. Mm-hmm. But God, i'm sorry yeah, yeah i mean
7: that's the key point that he adds adds to it marks adds the fact that you yes. know the labor if the profit if the labor isn't completely accounted for then the profit is essentially exploitation yes and so then the new development which you were talking about before which is that you know value is just basically what, what we decide money is and how, however much i'm gonna pay for something that's what the value is it's it's totally abstracted in a way and du Bois takes the labor theory of value that's developed from Marx and he further concrete, concretizes it in the black worker. That's right. um, but you it's, know it's, it's yeah. interesting because I just see such a parallel in how sort of the economic uh, studies developed in a way of canceling Adam Smith and canceling Karl yeah. Marx yeah. and uh, you know the consequences of that. And now we have you know this this uh, this work by Du Bois, which again further concretizes both the economic situation and the historic uh, situation in our country. And that's now being, you know, this this idea of America being progressive, having anything to look to is being, again, canceled in a similar vein of uh, these are inconvenient truths so we need to just shut them all down.
2: That's right. Um, But what is always being obscured? The labor capital relationship, the relationship of labor, to the production of wealth. Yeah. I don't care how you turn it. The attacks upon Black Reconstruction. What are they obscuring?
1: Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm.
2: relationship of labor to capital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You well, know? The, this mm-hmm.
7: term that he uses, and I like that he puts it in quotations. Independent wealth. Mm-hmm. Still, I still hear yeah. people say this. You know, I still hear this idea yeah. continue. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, now we also understand the economic ramifications. But with, see-
2: but then, see, the, the laborer who was a part of the American Revolution, this yeah. great coalition opposing the British, they believed, too, that all men are created equal. They, too, believed in the thing of freedom, and freedom meant freedom from exploitation. In the same way, it meant the same thing for the black worker. The coming of the Lord. Freedom from slavery was the freedom from exploitation. So, indeed, you know, in the bourgeois construal, John Locke, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Uh, This is it. That's what America, even up until very recently, I can buy a home in Philadelphia and leverage it to send my kids to college. The dream of black Philadelphia, to own a home. You see what I'm saying? Uh, And this, you know, blasé, 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 rest is history. Now, you're right. To obscure, and that's what Horn does with this talk of counter-revolution. To obscure this question of black labor. And I agree with Atnatyev. Uh, that is the key thing that has to be obscured. And uh, I'll shut up. Let me shut my mouth. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, man. Can I
0: create? You've
10: talked about how philosophy is politics by other means at times. And <laughs> yeah. I, I bring that up because when you mentioned Smith and Marx and then you said economics, in a sense, Smith and Marx were political economy. No question. Today we have, like, no question. Study the economy. And I bring that up because Adam Smith, the labor theory of value, there's an ought to it as well. Meaning when Smith comes on the scene, and by the way, he writes Wealth of Nations from his mom's house. So he's
2: from his mom's he's, house.
10: He's single and living alone. And he gets kicked out of university as well. So he has like this whole,
1: Adam
7: Adam Smith
10: is, is the reason Karl Marx is like, Adam Smith is my man. Like, yeah. and Hegel likes Adam Smith. Right? But the reason I bring that up is because Adam Smith says, well, there are all these schools of political economy, but the whole point of them is that they basically are ideologies to justify different sections of the ruling class. So the physiocrats in France, Mm -hmm. all the landlords, they say, oh, wealth comes from land.
2: Yeah, right. And all the mercantilists
10: say, oh, wealth comes from money. And he's like, bullshit. If you go back in time, what what starts it is labor, meaning he gives a philosophical critique of all of them Mm -hmm. to say actually it's labor is the basis of, of value. And the reason I bring that up is young Marx and young Engels say, Adam Smith is like Martin Luther in that in returning wealth to labor, it's similar to the way in which the Protestant Reformation returned God mm-hmm. to man, mm-hmm. in that sense. That it's literally like a religious yeah. move on the oh. part of, of Smith. And so that labor theory of value in a sense is abandoned by the ruling class, mm-hmm. right, in the Industrial Revolution. They start to say it's machines or it's other things, or it's the capitalists, mm-hmm. which by the way, so Smith did say that the that the employers exploit them. But he thinks that in the freest world, he was wrong, but we can can say, okay, Mm -hmm. Adam Smith meant well. He thought in the freest society, profits would go to the bare minimum and wages would be as high as possible. Mm -hmm. That's how he ends book Mm -hmm. one. So he would say the wealthiest nations have the highest wages, lowest profits. Which you could never fucking say today. Let's be honest. You could never say that today. Well,
2: if he's an analytical Marxist. Well,
10: I guess if he's an analytical Marxist. (laughs) You couldn't say because they would say wages are too high we need to break the labor
5: unions or something like
10: that. (laughs) The reason I bring that up is because the people that take on Adam Smith, as you were saying, the chartists, Mm -hmm. are the working class. In other words, they're the hairs to Adam Smith. Because when the employers are saying profit is coming from our, like, uh, coordination, or entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. or all these things that we hear today, the working class says, no, Adam Smith said it was labor. And so they take up the revolutionary tradition. And that's why they're the heirs to Adam Smith. And that's why Marx is following that red thread. from. From mm-hmm. And he has to, as you were saying, and as Du Bois does as well, retranslate it because of what changed from Smith's time. Meaning Smith is really, he's publishing while the American Revolution is happening. The Industrial Revolution has not really even really happened yet Mm -hmm. right when thomas jefferson sees a steam engine after the american revolution he's like i have no idea what this is and we don't need it in america
5: (laughs) (laughs) he he calls it like
10: a fire engine he's like this is some weird british thing we don't have it we have like land it's like a beautiful thing and over time he's like oh this is this new thing that i didn't know Mm -hmm. and he doesn't make the link unfortunately you know, Jefferson's great, but he's limited in many ways. Mm-hmm. He doesn't make the link between the Industrial Revolution and slavery. So that in 1820, and there's a book about this when he writes the letter about we had the wolf by the ears. Slavery, the Northwest Ordinance, stopping the slave trade when he was president. The fact that it's coming back with the Missouri Compromise means Thomas Jefferson says the entire point of the American Revolution is for naught if slavery comes back.
1: Right.
10: right, he says it's like a fire bell in the night, and he predicts there's going to be a crisis between the north and the south. Right, like forty years in advance in that case. So Thomas Jefferson is like, oh, the American Revolution doesn't mean anything. This continues. I all my life has been in vain. Doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Jefferson, last year of his life, meets Robert Owen, meets the socialist who's mentioned in the Communist Manifesto, yeah, yeah, yeah. and says maybe socialism will actually emancipate the slaves. It's a letter to Francis Wright, who yeah, was is an is abolitionist on right. women's rights. Yeah, this is why I'm on the Thomas Jefferson train all the time. <laughs> wow! Like,
2: Can I ask you what yeah. where did you get all this information? It's, <laughs> it's, it's on the, it's on
10: the, it's on the Monte, You know, like whatever Monticello like letters, like they have their letters and stuff like this. Wait, this, is is why, this is why there's such a campaign
4: to portray Jefferson as like on only. a only justice slave
10: owner and like a racist.
4: Yeah, it's all, all of those
10: things. Yeah, he calls himself a Jacobin. He defends the Committee of Public Safety. He defends the Jacobins, the Committee of Public Safety, because he's like, in America, we didn't have that, and that's why we had torn Feathering. Yeah, I don't know. That's why I'm like, you know, Hamilton's the counter kind of revolution to be like the musical, just all of these things. I'm like, this is the counter
4: kind of revolution. Yeah,
1: that's right.
4: Okay, so later in the book, or at least even in this chapter, Du Bois Mm -hmm. makes the point that not even this being the case that slavery was an inefficient system, Mm. that it was like grossly inefficient, Mm -hmm. and that actually if the the slaves had been like been free labor, that it could have been more efficient. Mm -hmm. But would you say that? ultimately that's not really like the end point that he's looking for the end point is that actually the condition of the black worker under slavery is that it exposes the Mm -hmm. general condition of labor in the united states and that it yeah as as you guys as you all are saying that it poses this in the most like overt form and that that is the true lesson which we should i would say
2: the most essential form Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. essential Mm -hmm. stuff yeah that labor is not free even when it has the veil um, of freedom. Right, right,
4: right, okay. okay.
2: And that's Marx, too.
4: Because, um, okay, I'll, I'll read out the comment from oh, Philip yeah. Logan, Oh um, he says that, in the point, in Who is point, this now? Philip Logan, yeah.
1: Philip Logan. Philip Logan, yes.
4: Um, he says, an important point is that, uh, an important point that is key to remember, however, is that African Americans began the history in the Americas as an enslaved peasantry. Modern slavery is a property, is a property relation precisely it is the fact that one is the personal property of a landlord. The African slaves, by the virtue of the fact that they are necessarily bound to the land, because of the feudal system in the original thirteen colonies, this relegated them to the bottom of the social hierarchy, hierarchy to ensure that white laborers and yeoman farmers were deaf to the working class. Uh, uh, were de facto the working class. Anyways, um, he says in effect, then blacks begin as a class that is bound to land subsistence or peasantry but they are enslaved peasants. That remains true for most of our history until the Great Migration where blacks are fully proletarianized in the factories. But wouldn't you boys be making the case that actually the slaves were proletarianized on the plantation? Absolutely,
2: yeah. 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 absolutely. And uh, I, that's where I would see it. Uh, see, and this this is a debate going back some time. I think Eric Foner might have this position that slavery was a pre-capitalist mode of production when in fact du bois is saying it is essentially a capitalist Um, mode of production with a feudal form Uh you know it's it's a go go yeah go ahead i think this also explains a little bit more of why the free soil
3: movement that was mm-hmm. happening in the north is so mm-hmm. confusing mm-hmm. or why it did not actually take root or like represent i think where america was actually going because i think some of what's interesting and you mentioned this thing about land where is the desire to get land or the relationship to land like basically the possibility to then become independent or individualistic and mm-hmm. then basically become a small-time capitalist mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. is not a part of like this organized working class but i think the, with the nature of slavery and like the plantation being sort of a collective form of labor, I think that also like sort of points to why they're proletariat, but then also in- So that like,
2: what points to why they're proletariat? Like why
3: they are proletariat and not like why they represent the democratic revolution mm-hmm. and sort of a collective democratic yeah. demand um, rather than just like individual, like, oh, like I'm gonna run away and gain my freedom. But actually like in the general strike chapter, Um, when Du Bois is describing how the sort of fugitives who ran away became a part of the Union Army and also were, like, I guess, employed to work on the plantations, like, that form of work was not just, like, parceling out, I think, land, but actually working together, like, paying taxes um, to support, like, the very old and the very young. And I think there's a part where there... But basically, like that uh, private interests were like, he's describing an experiment at Davis Bend, Mississippi, and he just said that they like built themselves cabins. There's a hospital for the sick. In the case of the sick and dependent, a tax was laid on the wages of workers. At first, it was thought the laborers would object, but on the contrary, they were perfectly willing and the imposition of the tax compelled the government to see that wages were properly paid. The freedmen freely acknowledged that they ought to exist in helping bear the burden of the poor and were flattered by having the government ask their help. It was the reaction of a new labor group who for the first time in their lives were receiving money in payment for their work. Um, And then there's an experiment at Davis Bend, Mississippi. And so private interests were displaced in an interesting socialistic effort made with all the property under the control of the government. It was divided into districts with Negro sheriffs and judges who were allowed to exercise authority petty theft and idleness were soon reduced to a minimum and the community distinctly demonstrated the capacity of the Negro to take care of himself and exercise under honest and competent direction the functions of self-government. And so, yeah, I just think this is an example of Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. it did not, like it's not inherent, like any relationship to land is not inherently a direction to capitalism. And something that's unique about the American situation was that there was so much land that was available Mm -hmm. for the taking. Mm -hmm. And I think that also leads into like the American assumption of like, oh, then everybody can become a capitalist. But I think the Black worker demonstrates in some ways like the unity of, I don't know, like maybe the unity of like modern industry and organization and then the older relationship to the land. Because I think something that emerges in the later chapters uh, after looking backward and looking forward is like how basically... The North and the South had been opposed, but after the Civil War, there's the rising of industry to swallow the South, and how there's this sort of unholy bargain that's taken so that actually Northern industrial capitalism becomes a dominant mm-hmm. form. Mm-hmm. And Du Bois sort of laments this, saying that actually this is so tragic because it mm-hmm. leads to an even greater exploitation of all labor, mm-hmm. and that this was not what the Civil War and what like Black Reconstruction could have been. And so I feel like it's that in. I don't know. I think in the Black worker and in the Black proletariat, there's like a possibility for a different kind of organization. That's still very modern, but it's like socialistic.
2: Well, but see, the other thing is we cannot forget that it took a war to dislodge Mm -hmm. the system of slavery Mm -hmm. and the plantation-owning class. Mm -hmm. They were ruined. Mm -hmm. They were were swept out of history, never to return, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what what great revolutions do. Uh, one ruling class is ended and they were ruined. They were driven into poverty. What would the economic system after that look like? Well, first of all, all of these formerly enslaved people had to find a way to make a living. So they their their first thing is, well, we need some land and a plow uh, and a horse, a donkey, mm-hmm. so that we could produce our own food. And so they were thinking at, with the plantation owner going with the plantation system going, we're now, we have to be self-dependent. But I would just add to one other thing. They were not unmindful, and Du Bois makes this point in the chapters on the dictatorship of the black proletariat. That they wanted political rights. They wanted the right to vote. They wanted the right to citizenship. So land was a part of it, but also their political rights, I think, may be uppermost. And hence they understood. That's why people who say, well, it was a it was a wildcat strike and not a general strike, and you know, yada yada yada. One of the things they're trying to dismiss is that. the the Black worker was in the vanguard of perhaps the greatest democratic revolution since the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. And and Du Bois is always making that comparison. And I'm just reminded of one other text where his interpretive biography of John Brown, Mm -hmm. uh, where uh, he, where he said that, um, um, he says somewhere in the beginning that the price of liberty is less than the cost of repression
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that uh, at the end of the day, freedom was a small price to mm-hmm. pay given the alternative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read just a little bit more before
9: yeah, we get it. So, oh yeah right where we stopped uh, mm-hmm. he makes that he makes that comment uh, that neither the north nor the west asked the black labor in the United States to be free and no. enfranchised. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, they accepted slave labor as yeah. fact. But they were yeah. determined that it shouldn't be right. territorially restricted and should not come. That
2: was in. Lincoln. Lincoln was what they called a the free soil.
9: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: They did not want slavery to expand, but they did not want it to end. You know, Mm -hmm. and that's the contrast Mm -hmm. between abolitionist, black and white, Mm -hmm. and the Free Soil movement. It took the the South seceding from the Union, Mm -hmm. and then a great war ensuing, Mm -hmm. and then, by 1862, uh, Lincoln and others in government realizing that the war could not be won without freeing the slaves. This was the paradox, the contradiction. And I guess, you know, that is American history, these sharp and dramatic contradictions and paradoxes, which we're living right now, you know? And the question is, well, at the end of the day, so much, of the future depends upon the capacity of black working people, uh, you know, to to do, you know, to fight. But it is we're still in the throes of a great democratic revolution. The incompleteness of it in America. Can
1: you
15: before, when we, oh, yeah. when, when we were reading this in our reading group, we just come off of uh, Dawn of Freedom mm-hmm. in Souls of Blackfoot, where he talks about. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau and its successes and failures. And part of this feels so much like Baldwin or King to me (laughs) where Du Bois is talking about the economic inseparability of these, the working class that's white and the workers that are black, Mm -hmm. but they don't recognize it. And this Mm -hmm. great division prevents their common Mm -hmm. um, advancement. Mm
1: -hmm. And
15: and Du Bois talks in Dawn of Freedom about the inheritance of this division um, inhibiting the advancement later and it comes mm-hmm. out again the contradiction comes out again when the white working class can't or the white man can't see himself in the black man right mm-hmm. he can't see their comments that's why right. that's your right freedom is tied yes, up with this mine. is huge your slavery uh, undercuts my my power
2: um. or your freedom is a threat to mine
15: mm-hmm.
2: and that's and that's the propaganda of the ruling class and of course when we talk about the left redeveloping a form of a color line for immediate and temporary political gain, they do not want black and white labor to see what what Baldwin called the mirror, to see myself in white labor, to see yourself in black labor. That's the existential moment and... um, it's 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 a grotesque thing, a moral grotesqueness to have a quote left and so-called progressives objectively re-insinuating, redeveloping, reassigning the color line in this time by, yeah. But I agree with you. I'm just thinking about
15: like the inheritance of, of that Unreconciled. Unreconciled, it, that yeah. That goes from Reconstruction down Absolutely. to the 60s. And that is it. And still
2: it continues to this That's right. And and unreconciled but resolvable.
1: Resolvable,
2: for sure. There is a way out, but we're faced with, and this is surfing's point, with this mm-hmm. great uh, monster, this behemoth, uh, Of a ruling class that controls the means of information, the mechanisms of knowledge and of ideology, and can then infuse or insinuate itself into the lives of the working people, you know, can create a narrative, quote, for the working class and then all of these mechanisms of the all you know, inverted commas of the left who are defending black workers against the racist and fascist white working class. Whose fucking narrative is that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whose interest does that narrative serve? Exactly. I mean, that's what makes it so infuriating. I agree with you, but the other thing is, we might not be that far off from precisely what Baldwin was talking about. We might, now that doesn't mean that everybody's gonna have a, a, a Nirvana moment of, 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 you know. No, it comes gradually, it comes, you know, but, you know, um, Stephen J. Gould, The great um, evolutionary biologist, Mm -hmm. he used a term called punctuated equilibrium,
5: Mm
2: -hmm. where the old system uh, of quantitative change Mm -hmm. takes on a qualitative change Mm -hmm. that is punctuated equilibrium. Mm -hmm. He was referring to in biology. uh, evolutionary biology, when a new species emerges, just like the appearance of anatomically modern human beings.
1: Come on back. We're we're
5: funny,
2: what
13: have we not said? <laughs> <laughs> we
5: said a lot today. Oh, but
13: I'm just been really good. Yeah, but keep were, going.
5: This is good.
2: Okay. No, but but this new species, species it's a qualitative change mm-hmm. from a lot of people try to say, well, uh, we are nothing but uh, our our forefathers, mm-hmm. our foremothers in, in the ape kingdom. Mm-hmm. But something qualitatively happens mm-hmm. uh, that genetically in terms of the mitochondrial DNA, which is only passed on through the mother, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: creates, Mm -hmm. for reasons that none of us completely understand, a new species, Mm -hmm. a new DNA. You know, well, of course, a million years ago, Mm -hmm. but only 200,000 years ago anatomically modern human beings appear on earth. And that is what Gould calls punctuated equilibrium. The old equilibrium is punctuated, is toppled, and a new one emerges. Mm -hmm. By the way, just on this question of equilibria, this is a very important concept in social and natural sciences and economics and it's i would say it is a term that you have to be careful with because it can it can it's very seductive because we all want equilibrium and equilibrium is equal to stability a new stability but um you know most and this is another concept in physical science far from equilibrium dynamics that profound revolutionary and other kinds of changes happen in places far from the equilibrium point the point of stability now that's this it's kind of controversial because then you could argue that the new emerges from the old and from the moment of the position of equilibrium or stability which is uh, destabilized and a new equilibrium comes into being i'm just saying hesitantly that don't think these things happen like suddenly a new newness happens Mm -hmm. this is a process a very long process and i think from our point of view, we are in the throes of something new coming into being, but it will not be, well, in a lot of ways, like we imagine it, it will be, I don't know how, but I just wanted to bring that up. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when we do economics and especially what they call neoclassical economics or supply-side economics or modern-day bourgeois economics. It's always market economics, which means that supply and demand uh, reach a point of stability or equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And so if you take a million types of calculus... (coughs) (laughs) If you were ever interested in economics, don't major in it
1: okay.
2: <laughs> because they're talking about markets and they're not talking about economic relations and they're certainly not talking about political economy. Um, so, I, I just, I don't know what that
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> is
13: well,
2: Sarafina so said it's time to go. Now, <laughs> what, what page are we? Let's see. Yeah, we just
7: stopped at the bottom of page eight, uh, the, the last paragraph. Okay. So we ended with, but they were determined. Yeah, that's
2: that okay. Be, no, no, no. That's okay. That's okay. I um, I know. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right could we? Could I just ask yeah, that
2: we do them. one last hey. thing, Sarafina? Just one. You see. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Kathy, you see on page 9 okay, yes. the paragraph that begins, The Slavery of Negroes yeah. in the mm-hmm. South. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. you can
2: go with that. <laughs> oh, you okay. could read that.
14: <laughs> the Slavery of Negroes oh, okay. in the South was not usually a deliberately cruel and oppressive system. It did not mean systematic starvation or murder. On the other hand, it is just as difficult to conceive as quite true the idyllic picture of a patriarchal state, with cultured and humane masters under whom slaves were as children, guided and trained in work and play, given even such mental training as was for their good and for the well-being of the surrounding world. Um, I'll continue. Yeah, please. (laughs) The victims of Southern slavery were often happy, had usually adequate food for their health, and shelter sufficient for a mild climate. The sunders could say with some justification that when the mass of their field hands were compared with the worst class of laborers in the slums of New York and Philadelphia mm. and the factory towns of New England, the black slaves were well off and in some particulars better off. Slaves lived largely in the country where health conditions were better. They worked in the open air and their hours were above the current hours for peasants throughout Europe. They received no formal education and neither did the Irish peasant the English factory labor, nor the German Bauer, And in contrast with these free white laborers, the Negroes were protected by a certain primitive sort of age old pension, job insurance, and sickness insurance. That is, they must be supported in some fashion. When they were too old to work, they must have attention and sickness for they represented invested capital, and they can never be among the unemployed.
2: Just keep on. Mm-hmm.
14: But on the other hand, it is just as true that Negro slaves in America represented the worst and lowest, lowest conditions among modern laborers. One estimate is that the maintenance of a slave in the South cost the master about $19 a year, which means they were among the poorest paid laborers in the modern world. They represented in a very real sense the ultimate degradation of man. Yes. <laughs> In the system, indeed, the system was so reactionary, so utterly inconsistent with modern progress that we simply cannot grasp it today. No matter how degraded the factory hand, he is not (coughs) real. The tragedy of the Black slave's position was precisely this, his absolute subjection to the individual will of an owner and to quote, the cruelty and injustice, which are the invariable consequences of the exercise of irresponsible power, especially where authority must sometimes be delegated by the planter to agents of inferior education and coarser feelings. And okay,
2: that's. I just wanted to get that. See this. See this is nuance. This is subtlety. This is uh, thinking and analyzing separated from this hothouse running off at the Mm
1: mouth.
2: You know what I'm saying? What he is saying, that labor was degraded everywhere in the world under capitalism. Mm -hmm. The factory system in England and in the north of the United States was a cruel system. And then after outlining that, he then says, but the black proletariat was the most degraded because there was no opportunity for any form of free association of the organization of, of themselves as workers, either into unions or whatever other kind of associations. It was the complete denial, and this is where the concept of civil rights is so important, that labor... If nothing else, it's long history throughout the world. Uh, In India, the Tai Chi Rebellion in China.
11: Taiping. Taiping. Taiping, Taiping.
2: oh, I'm sorry, (laughs) forgive me, (laughs) forgive me. I'm sorry, forgive me. um, In each instance, you see them fighting for civil rights. Mm -hmm legal rights, citizenship. Mm -hmm. This is an old story. Mm -hmm. And so it was true here. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? The fight, to when they say to be a man, Mm -hmm. then we're not talking about a man in the sense of freedom from, Mm -hmm. they're talking about freedom to. Mm -hmm. The freedom to be complete. Mm -hmm. And this... We see it so much today. You know, that's why we're not, quote, anti-MAGA movement, anti-Trump. Because we understand what the rebellion is about. And it's spontaneous. It is not the same as the Black civil rights movement. It does not have the richness that the Black church and Black... Universities and colleges and black institutions brought to struggle based upon this long history of fighting for these rights. I don't know whether that makes sense. The weakness of the Trump movement Mm -hmm. is that it does not have this anchorage yet. Mm -hmm. With this anchorage, it becomes a world movement, world historic movement, even. Mm This Anchorage, mm-hmm. and you know, we, although we didn't talk about today, you know, the uh, the Church of the Overcomers leadership conference that we attended, mm-hmm. which was such a valuable experience yes. in so many ways, mm-hmm. because, or if we go to mosque number 12 or mosque number 25, but what we see is the free organization of the black proletariat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we see, now this happened in the union movement, especially the UAW and some extent Mm -hmm. the steel union and the longshore unions Mm -hmm. where black labor asserted itself within the framework of the labor movement. But what we see when we go to the Church of the Overcoming spending those long hours with them and listening, Mm -hmm. we hear, the voice, the compassion, the generosity, the aspirations of black working people. Mm -hmm. And some who had suffered some of the great tragedies
1: Mm -hmm.
2: of you know that had been brought upon black working and upon working people. And frankly what this uh, the black the white working class is aspiring to whether it's stated or not, is this unity with this tradition. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And once they find it, the world will open up to them. (laughs) But I don't think it'll be too long. Okay, I guess we have to go, get ready to go. And we will continue this. We'll, we'll try to let's try next week to finish up the Black Worker, okay. Okay. and maybe if we skip over some parts, yeah, selected
11: yeah. passages. Yeah, you
2: sure? uh, yeah, uh, especially if we could do just uh, read Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. uh, What mm-hmm. to the American Slaves the Fourth of July, but mm-hmm. but also page fifteen. It was thus the black worker as founding stone of a new economic system in the 19th century and for the modern world who brought civil war in America. He was its underlying cause in spite of every effort to base the strife upon union and national power. The dark and vast sea of human labor in China and India, the South Seas and all Africa, in the West Indies and Central America and in the United States, that great majority of mankind on whose bent and broken backs rest today, the founding stones of modern industry shares a common destiny. It is despised and rejected by race and color, paid a wage below the level of decent living, driven, beaten, prisoned and enslaved in all but name, spawning the world's raw material and luxury, cotton, wool, coffee, tea, cocoa, palm oil, fiber, spice, rubber, silks, lumber, copper, gold, diamonds, leather. How shall we end the list and where? All these are gathered up, gathered up at prices lowest of the low manufactured, transformed, and transported at fabulous gain. And the resultant wealth is distributed and displayed and made the basis of world power and universal dominion and armed arrogance in London and Paris, Berlin and Rome, New York, and Rio de Janeiro, just the last one. Here is the real modern labor problem. Here is the real modern labor problem which is the fate of dark humanity. Mm -hmm. Here is the kernel of the problem of religion and democracy of humanity. Words and futile gestures avail nothing. That's what you experience. Out of the exploitation of the dark proletariat comes the surplus value, filch from human beasts, which in cultured lands, the machine and harness power, veil and conceal. The emancipation of man is the emancipation Mm -hmm. of labor. Mm -hmm. And the emancipation of labor is the freeing of that basic majority of workers Mm -hmm. who are yellow, brown, and black
5: my god this <laughs> and that's how we finish
2: the <laughs> so we'll, we'll start chapter two next. <laughs> 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 I want I should be born again. I I want to
1: just
9: be like
1: you know